time I saw her was Christmas two years ago. She's getting more and more beautiful, but uh, different. You know, like she was changing. guy, uh, an ex maybe, might have been mad at her. Well, what kind of life did she have? Who did she hang around with? Can you tell me anything? Model, face, body, a beautiful dress, and nothing underneath. Jessica in Italy. She's in Milan. Tell her not to open the door. I'm Jessica Crane's brother. She, she's a model, and I, I think she may have been murdered. the bloody pit i am rod barnett and today i have a brand new guest on the show someone that i've been an admirer of for several years now and uh, i don't know why i never thought to reach out to this person uh, but uh, i'm glad i finally did because she's an incredibly nice person and has agreed to be on this show which shows you that she has a tolerance for at least some of my bs we'll see how much more <laughs> of it she can deal with amanda reyes how are you doing I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited to be here. Well, I'm not kidding when I say I'm a big fan, uh, not just of the uh, Made for TV Mayhem podcast, but uh, well, I also I, I do love your uh, your guest appearances on other podcasts like uh, The Hysteria Continues. Those those are always fun. Your enthusiasm for slasher films rivals your your enthusiasm for uh, TV movies. I have to say. Yeah, that's my second great love. Um, sometimes my first, depending on what mood I'm in. But um, yeah, I love doing that show. I love uh, harassing them and talking about crazy film theory and stuff. And they've been really um, tolerant of me, and I appreciate it. Well, you always add something to that show, and, and, and it's it, it's it's amazing. Of course, anybody who does any podcasting has got to have a level of enthusiasm for this stuff, no matter what you do or say. And uh, the thing is, uh, I don't know that you necessarily always hear it with a lot of podcasters, but with you, man, every time you're you're in either your own show or anyone else's, your enthusiasm bubbles over, and that's I think part of the reason why I probably try you know thought about contacting you for a while long before I did because I thought, man, somebody with that much enthusiasm, if, if they surely they surely they have to have some downtime where they're they're doing something where they they don't 
feel that enthusiastic about things. And I don't want to put that person in a position where she has to be enthusiastic for me. <laughs> but then, no. then I did contact you and you, uh, I have to say, you came up with a couple of ideas for shows right off the bat that completely stunned me. And I won't, uh, I won't talk about the, the one that most excited me, that most made my toes curl up. I will say that this one uh, that we elected to do first uh, was kind of out of left field, but right up my alley. This is uh, this is Euro Trash Joy, and I have to say, what a perfect choice because I don't know anybody else other than you who would have been willing to jump into this uh, this title pool with me. Oh, great! I'm so excited. This is a movie. I, years ago, I wrote a review of it for Retro Slashers, and God knows what I said. Um, my writing has changed so much, but I, I've always been a really big fan of this movie, and I'm sort of surprised by the fact that it is so kind of not talked about and um there's been a little bit of chatter about it we can talk about it later i don't know if it's been covered and i'm since we haven't said the title yet by somebody but like in general this movie kind of fell through the cracks and like my tv movie work like i said to you before we started recording i really like to try to introduce people to films that kind of got um fell by the wayside maybe got forgotten about that i think deserve a larger audience so um, I'm hoping people listen, and if they haven't seen the film, that they'll seek it out, because I think it's, it's to me, it's damn near perfect. It's kind of amazing. Uh, the film is Sotto il Vestito Niente. Uh, that's the Italian, and uh, yes, I know I probably mangled that pretty horribly, and I apologize for that, but that's kind of, uh, that's just me staying on brand. Uh, the film is called Nothing Underneath in English. It came out in 1985. Would you, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I think this is pretty obvious, but there, there's always this argument once you move into the 80s. For you, this is a giallo, right? Oh, I think it's straight up a giallo. I mean, so my knowledge of giallo is pretty casual. Like I've seen all the big titles or most of them. Um, and I know that there, when I first got into Italian horror, I called everything a giallo. I didn't know that, like, sometimes if it's a supernatural, like House by the Cemetery probably would not be a giallo. Yeah. But to me, I just called it that because it came out of this sort of pool of filmmakers who were making those type films at different points in their career. But this one has a lot of the same. I mean, it's got the police procedural. It's got the black glove killer. It's got a very stylish setting. It takes place in the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a whodunit. And so I think that it, it hits all of the beats that a giallo would hit. So, yeah, I would say it's very late entry. I mean, it's way after the heyday of it. And I think maybe people might be more prone to calling it a thriller. But I think it definitely falls into that camp of that Italian group. Uh, it's just It just came so much later. And it turns out it was a really big hit in Italy when it came out. So um, audiences there were still really open to that type of filmmaking. I think it definitely is a giallo, not not only because of the obvious black-gloved killer aspect, but because primarily the setting and the the storyline. The setting, I mean, if you if you're going to set a, a thriller in the fashion world, you're going to immediately draw attention to the fact that you know one of the earliest uh, Blood and Black Lace, Mario Bava's film from 1964, uh, that was the setting for that, and that and that movie in a lot of ways kind of set the template mm-hmm. for what came after it. So if you're going to set your story in the fashion world and have models being killed off by someone <laughs> using whatever means. Uh, this is, you know, you're, you're immediately kind of sticking a flag in the in the ground and going, guess what we're making here, uh, and and that's fine with me. I, 
thought, you know, I, I was looking back and I thought to myself, well, exactly how many uh, giallos were actually made taking place within the fashion industry? And I, and I, I there, there are several as there's, there are always fashion models lurking around in a yeah. number of them, but they don't necessarily, the movie doesn't necessarily take place within the fashion industry and in, in that maybe only one or two characters will be, you know, fashion models or whatever. The thing about this that harkens back immediately to Blood and Black Lace is like everybody involved in this movie, one way or another, except for the protagonist and the cops, are in the fashion industry. Well, I mean, I don't know the full background of this film, but one of the things that struck me about it and one of the reasons why I love it so much is that I think that they use real models to play the models. And, you know, there's a whole thing about models as they're portrayed in TV and film that never rings true for me. They're, they look like, there's a difference between actresses and models, right? And you can have a whole conversation about that. But, and they actually use, there's a scene uh, that takes place at a fashion show and that was a real fashion show. And I think that it adds an air of authenticity to the film yeah, that I yeah. really love. The, it, that that was a real fashion show. And apparently from what I've read, um, this was this this screenplay the the film was based on a book although apparently they didn't take a whole lot from the book other than the title and the setting and kind of a, a basic idea or two but because the book when it was published in Italy was rather controversial no none of the uh, or at least most of the uh, fashionistas the the actual uh, uh, creators of fashion, the people who would actually be putting on a fashion show of this type that we see in the movie, none of them were, were willing to be involved with it because of the uh, their dislike of what the book was about and how it was done. So uh, the, the the one the one um, the designer, designer Moschino was yes. yeah okay. So he he apparently was the only designer who was willing to uh, be a part of the film, kind of. I guess he was seen as even inside the field as a bit of a, a rebel or a jerk. So he was kind of intentionally thumbing his nose at uh, all the other designers by by <laughs> by being a part of this movie in the first place. But you're right. It does completely add an air of authenticity. And, yeah, there are a few uh, not just in that scene. There uh, a couple of members of the cast itself uh, are. Are models who are you know attempt, yes. attempting with various degrees of success to be actors, and of course I'm never gonna I'm never gonna downplay the uh, the move from modeling to acting. I think that uh, there are far too many fa- fantastic examples of uh, people who started out as models and who became really good actors. I, you know you je- you know for for God's sake Jessica Lang Charlize Theron. Let's let's not start a long list, but those those are two that I would put at the top. Where you're just going, you know, these these are people who, yes, they started modeling, but if you're going to discredit their acting their acting ability, you're really not paying attention. I have to say, I was a little shocked that our protagonist, uh, Tom Shanley, w- wasn't still doing modeling work because he's possibly the prettiest person in the movie. Uh, he's... <laughs> yeah, he, he might be. Do you know, I'm actually semi-friendly with him on my social media, and I've never really reached out to him to talk about this movie, but every so often he will post an image from it, and I'll make some comment about how much I love the movie and he'll like it or mm. whatever, and it, I always get super giggly about it. Um <laughs> You know, he's he's actually a really wonderful actor. I don't this is probably the biggest thing he did in terms of starring in something that I can think of, but he was also people may remember him speaking of T V movies. He was like the six million dollar boy in one of the bionic 
man reunion yeah, movies. He was the son, I think, that Lindsay Wagner had with Lee Majors, and he ends up get, having to get bionic parts after an accident. And um, that might be his most iconic role, but this might be his biggest. Is it just, me, is it just biggest. me, or are those characters, I mean, their entire families just seem cursed to become cyborgs. What the hell? <laughs> they possibly, possibly. I love those reunion movies so much. They're crazy. But yeah, they like their son has to all of a sudden become bionic. And it's just like, well, lucky that he has some great parents to help him along the way, you know, to learn how well, to I be bionic. I was really shocked to look at it, to look at his, uh, at his career, to look at his resume, because uh, to be, to be blunt, uh, often you'll look at uh, whatever some of the people involved, especially, I mean, we'll talk about it in this movie as well. You'll you'll look at uh, an actor or actress from a film of this type that we you know dearly love and see that they made like you know fifteen movies and then we're done. Uh, but this guy, <laughs> you're right. I mean, he's still working today and he's done so much yeah. television work. Tom Shanley has been in a, a blue bajillion uh, TV shows and movies, and it's it's really kind of a, a shock to realize just how much of a staple he is in not just you know episodic television. But that he seems to be somebody who probably gets the tap as you know a certain type. I haven't. I certainly haven't watched even a fraction of the television episodes that he's done. But I, I have a feeling that he's probably cast as a particular type of character most of the time. Kind, kind of amazing how long his career has been. I mean, you know, he seems to have been in just about everything. I mean, you look at the list. It, it, JAG, CSI, CSI Miami, Star Trek Enterprise, uh, CSI New York, own, you know, the, a bunch of different TV movies, uh, NCIS, Hawaii Five O. This guy's not hurting for work to this day, and it's kind of it's kind of cool to see that somebody out of this movie at least had a really long and fruitful career. Yeah, it makes me really happy because I think he's quite talented. And um, when I think when I saw this movie, I had no frame of reference for him. It wasn't until later I made the connection to the that Bionic movie he's in. <laughs> um, but I was always really taken with him in this because you know it's kind of a tough role. And he's in most of the scenes, and he he is really beautiful, but he also has to play this very fish-out-of-water, guy-next-door kind of type. And I think he does a really good job of, of playing this sort of lost person motivated to find his sister who's missing in this place that he's never been in this world that he doesn't understand. And he, I think he really carries the film very well. I was really surprised, especially because I think he... he Strangely enough, I don't know if it's just that you're spending more time with him in the movie, uh, but at the beginning of the movie, uh, I felt, oh my God, I don't know if this guy is, if this is our central character, I'm not so sure that this guy is going to be particularly good at this at all, because the opening sequences that take place there in uh, in Yellowstone, um, he, he comes off as, he comes off strangely, he comes off as, as someone who uh, is not, has not either not been behind, not been in front of the camera often, or is a little uncomfortable doing what he's doing. Uh, but what's interesting is that when you watch the film, once you've watched the film once and watched, and then you watch it a second time, or you kind of think back at you know onto those opening scenes after you've watched the movie, you realize that, well, no, what we're supposed to be seeing here is that's the way he's, you know, he is this innocent fellow in those opening sequences. He's this, he's this guy who's. You know, never been outside of you know the the state that he was that he grew up in. He's he's had a very 
happy life. He's had a kind of sheltered existence to a degree. And then things get more and more complicated for him as the film goes on. And in other words, what I'm seeing at the beginning of the movie initially that worried me is exactly what you're supposed to be seeing. You're, you're supposed to be seeing someone who's uh, a little uh, naive to a degree and that who has a, a little bit of a, of, a, of a character arc as he is exposed to uh, a, a lot of different things that this guy never really ever thought he was going to be involved in. Yeah, I think one of the most pivotal moments at the beginning of the film is when he finally gets to Italy and he goes to see Donald Pleasance, who plays the police officer assigned to the case. And he says, you know, how old are you? Or when you, how old's your sister? Were they're twins, his sister that's missing. And he starts asking them about their age. And he said, well, she's turning, she'll turn 21 next month. And so we understand this guy's only yeah. 20. And there's this, and at the beginning, Donald Pleasance was very put off by him. He's like, oh, these women go missing all the time. They fall in love and they run away and that could possibly be all it is. And then he sees that this very young, innocent guy is really concerned about his sister and they're so young. And then he softens up and he starts to recall all the information that Tom Shanley had given him about her and to say, I've been listening to you and I know you're concerned. And it's a, so one of the things I love about this movie is, um, I don't know if you go through this beat by beat or not, but just to get into it, the bromance sort of between Donald Pleasant's character and Tom Shanley, who ironically plays a guy named Bob Crane, which is hilarious. I don't know why they use that name, <laughs> but he called one of the things I love about Donald Pleasant's character is he nicknames, uh, Bob Crane as Wyoming because yeah. that's where he's from. And, it's such a sweet touch. And so the friendship that they have, they go to eat spaghetti at like Wendy's, <laughs> right? Like which they have their Wendy's has a salad bar and spaghetti. And the, this sort of camaraderie that they develop between each other is one of the things that sets the film apart for me because the film has a lot of emotional resonance that you don't always see with giallos. You see a lot of people get pretty people get killed and the protagonists are always really likable, but like there's something about this movie that, um, and when we get to the end, we can talk about it that, that rests on something that is actually like based on a real emotion and real friendship and real warmth. And so, um, yeah, he is very naive and innocent, but this guy kind of takes care of him and helps him along and, and trusts him. And um, and I think it's a really sweet relationship. It's not like the police is an antagonist at all. Yeah. They want to help this guy find his sister. And um, and I love it. I love that there's really only one bad guy. It's not like he has to climb all of these mountains in the film. You know, to he has he has like um, an alliance with somebody, and I think it's really sweet. Well, the Donald Pleasance character as the the police commissioner assigned to this case, he he really does. It's it's almost a, a grandfatherly affection that seems to develop for this younger guy. And you're right, he is very resistant at the beginning. And uh, even the uh, well, let's let's bring this out into the open, okay? So, um, one of the elements that sometimes crops up in a giallo that can be a make or break for some viewers is a somewhat supernatural or. Uh, paranormal touch to the storyline that can sometimes be uh, a huge pill to swallow for some people. And this movie, for good or bad, definitely has an element of that because the main character and his sister, who has gone off to Italy to become a, a fashion model, they do have a psychic connection. And of course, this is this goes back. I mean, you can you can look at all kinds of different uh, giallos that have these this type of, of thing within. I think uh, I think what they may have been aiming for here a little bit more than some other things is kind of a 
a strange connection to either something like uh, The Fury by Brian De Palma, which isn't really mm. a giallo, or kind of weirdly to Sisters by De, De Palma as well. The yeah, there 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 are touches. I mean, because the telekinesis thing is there from the fury and the uh, the, the 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 kind of um, shall we say joined joined siblings is definitely there from from sisters, but the uh, idea of the the two of them uh, under certain circumstances being able to feel and slightly experience what uh, what is going on with the other is uh, it's a it's a hurdle that you know. Some people are not willing to to hop across, but if you're watching a film of this type, this this is the kind of thing that's fairly standard for the genre. It's not it's not it's certainly not in every film, and it's definitely in a smaller percentage of them in general. But it's no more outlandish than some of the things that you're expected to believe in. Uh, well, I mean, good lord, four flies on gray velvet, the ridiculous idea of the human eye. Uh, retaining the the final image of someone who's been who, someone who's died on it, something that you can actually photograph is without a doubt, to my mind, the most ridiculous idea that has ever been put forth in a giallo that we're supposed to hinge an entire plot point on. But the uh, the, the telekinetic or or I'm I'm sorry, not telekinetic, but uh, tele- telepathic uh, connection between these two twins is what starts the mystery going and it is what kind of drives the ending as well it actually you know it su- supplies the, the necessary clue to get us to the final act and if you're not willing to you're not willing to roll with that you're probably going to be one to, to you get, you're going to be one to check out on this film at a certain point but it's almost gone for the body of the film. That aspect of things is gone, and of course, when you find out why it's gone, it's 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 rather it's rather smartly played. That element starts things and ends things, kind of ends things or helps to end things. But the body of the film is just a straight murder mystery. It's uh, you know I, you you mentioned earlier the the phrase police procedural, which is pretty close to what a big chunk of this is, but. One of my favorite things about Giallo's is how so often the central character is not a cop, is not a detective, is not someone who has any facility for for figuring any of this kind of shit out, who's just thrust into the situation and is either under suspicion themselves or just can't leave something alone and therefore is drawn into trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And I think that is one of the best hooks that a movie of this type can have it's it's it, it's so in it's all it's so immediately involving and i think it works so well in so many of these movies and that is definitely what we're dealing with here um just you've brought up a couple of things i want to comment on so first you, i'm really glad you brought up de palma because this movie is clearly influenced by a couple of different things de palma-esque as well as eyes of laura mars which is was pretty obvious from the opening scenes where he sees mm-hmm. the murder from wyoming that's happening in italy but um, also, uh, this music by Pino Donaggio was lifted from Body Double, and most of it anyway. It's, m- most of it, if it's not exactly the same score, and I don't think it is, there are so many little steals that Donaggio is pulling from his own work for Body Double that it's insane. Yeah, and so I think De Palma was a really big influence on Carlo Vanzina. Did I say that right? Vanzina. And... Um, and so, so I'm glad that you brought up some De Palma movies because he's really looking back at those and using them. And I guess Body Double would have come out the year before this, yeah. right? I think Body Double is 84. So it's so he's really like, 
uh, sort of referencing something that would be very much on the minds of people. I would imagine people who watch Body Double would have sought out Nothing Underneath because uh, they're sort of the same in the sort of glamorous locations and um, beautiful women kind of setup. Um, and I love that. The other thing is that I was kind of browsing the IMDb comments when I was doing a little research on this movie. And some people were sort of put off by the telekinetic uh, connection. And we can talk about that when we get to the end, because in a way, it seems really strange that there would still be a connection between the two, considering how it ends. But at the same time, I think in a way it works because there's a conversation that Tom Shanley has. I know there's a lot of noise, just so everybody knows I have pet rats and they like to wrestle. So <laughs> you might be hearing some wrestling in the background. Um, so, but um, he tells, he tells uh, Donald Pleasant's character a story about how he was trapped in an avalanche and his sister went right to him. And, um, and so I think in a way, even though, it's hard to, I don't want to be too spoiler about the end yet. Um, it feels like there shouldn't be connection. I think that they've kind of established how strong they are connected. So I think it works in this universe that Vanzina built. And I buy it always. And I think you're right. I think the fact that it only shows up in a couple of different scenes in the film makes it um, easier to take. I think if the whole film had based on, been based off of a psychic connection, then it probably wouldn't have worked. But as long as it's an impetus to get him to Italy and also to get him to the place he needs to be at at the end of the film. I think it works rather well in the body of the film. And, um, and I, I think also just like I said, with emotional resonance, I think it's important to underscore like the relationship he has with his sister is actually very close. And so even though we don't have any scenes of them together, it's constantly like sort of put into our heads that they were until she went to Italy to pursue a modeling career were very very close as brother and sister and so that helps also keep the film going because his motivation always feels really pure and driven by something that comes out of love you know and so I think that's important as well well um really quickly before I move on to my my next point I would like to point out that one of the stranger things about this movie that drew my, my mind immediately to uh, De Palma's body double before we even got any of the uh, little pieces of music on the score that remi- that made me go, oh, that's definitely body double. That's definitely music from body double or a very close approximation of it, is that there is a very obvious body double in the film. And uh, I wondered right. if you had picked up on it. Do you mean the the sister when she goes back to her apartment and she takes off her clothes? Yeah. You know, that's funny. I wondered that myself because there's that scene prior to her going back to the hotel and she's with, uh, is it Fabio Testi? Is that the actor? I can't remember who plays the the guy. Oh, no, it's, uh, it's uh, definitely not. Uh, Fabio Testi. Well, boy, that would that would be that would be intriguing. Uh, you mean the uh, you mean when she's out at the club with the uh, fashion photographer? Yeah, and that really good looking guy corners her in the bathroom. I can never remember who that actor yeah. is. And uh, what is that fellow's name? Darn. You know, so funny. I kept thinking it was Fabio Testi, and at the, when I was looking at it, I was like, I remember him looking different. And uh, that shows you how much I know about <laughs> Italian. Like people listening now know I forget it. She doesn't know what she's talking about. But. Um, so, um, but she, he pulls down her top, right? And he's, and he's trying to kiss yeah. her, which is ridiculous because she doesn't want it. And I'm like, what girl is going to go for that? And so, um, but like, um, I can't remember if that's, you can tell if that's her or if that's another body double. Um, I, I can't recall. But then when she gets back to the hotel room, yeah, it's clearly another, another person. Yeah. And, and of course, if you're not, 
if you're not wise to the ways in which uh, film editing is used to make you think that you're seeing someone's nude body when you're really not, uh, it, it would be easy to think that you're looking at that actress's nude, you know, nude, nude torso when you are actually being very carefully <laughs> shown someone else's. Um, the the match the match is pretty pretty good, but I have to say that um, this this probably speaks poorly of me that I that I look for this kind of stuff ever since 1984 when I saw the movie Body Double and learned how this kind of stuff is done, but also because um, I, I I take I took note earlier in the film of uh, the actress uh, Nicola Pering. Uh, who plays Jessica. Uh, I took note of uh, what her legs looked like as she was walking away from the camera. And the actress who is nude in the scene as she walks into the bathroom has different has different calves. And so that will just tell you what kind of a pervert I am right there. Sorry. Wow. Um, hey, that's pretty that's yeah. pretty observant. I don't remember thinking that. But um Yeah but most people wouldn't. That's the problem. <laughs> well it's a talent you have. I mean that's just what it is. <laughs> a talent is that what we're gonna I, call I, that? I, that's talent? what i'm gonna call it yeah to be able to oh, identify okay, okay. women's calves that may help you later on when you do um police work <laughs> for donald pleasance or when I, or when i write my epic uh genre uh, genre book uh the 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 calves of the killer and how to spot them or something like that. <laughs> that'd be good that sounds like a name of an a giallo <laughs> Calves of the killer, <laughs> and yet, and yes, and of course, there would have to be there would have to be uh, some kind of there would have to be scenes at a at a at a at a beef at some kind of farm where they're processing animals for beef, so that we could throw the title out there just as some kind of bizarre red herring. That yeah. would be hilarious. <laughs> so you've already uh, written a movie, uh, a poorly written movie, <laughs> halfway there, yeah. Uh, but I'm sorry. I sorry. I interrupted you. Oh, well, there was uh, the the other point that, uh, or at least one of the one of the other points I wanted to wanted to get to before uh, we moved to before we moved into kind of looking through the the entire plot is that you you mentioned earlier the the ridiculous nature of this guy just kind of accosting her in the in the bathroom, and uh, usually things like that are put in a movie of this type to give you a sense of the kind of uh, degraded nature of a lot of the people who are hangers on or even work within the, uh, the industry that these characters are moving in. And in the fashion industry, of course, that's, that's pretty standard. I mean, remember blood and black lace, the, the movie, this, this feels so much like it's referencing had, uh, had a pretty amazing for its times, uh, character who was a junkie who was, you know, whose main, whose, whose main problem was that he was motivated by trying to get a fix and who had, and he had a fashion, a fashion model girlfriend who was, uh, involved in helping him to get the drugs that he needed. And so things of this nature, uh, they, they, they add a little bit of sleaze to the story. The whole, the whole idea is to add a little bit of sleaze. And of course, you know, thrillers of this type, they're they're going to have a certain quotient of nudity in general, a certain quotient of sleaze kind of ladled on top of it, sometimes enhancing, sometimes they enhance one another. If if done properly, the seasoning mixes well and makes everything taste better. Uh, the, uh, the, the sleaze factor in this is kind of strange to my degree because I have to say, this is such a beautiful looking movie. It is so well photographed, kind of, uh, con- it, 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 the direction of it is very controlled in a sense that you feel the control to a certain degree. And I fear that 
one of the aspects of this kind of story that can sometimes get cranked up higher and higher, which would be the sleaze factor, is a little lacking. And so I think the only scene that I can point to, well, okay, there are about two different scenes uh, that we can talk to before we get into spoiler territory where we're supposedly dealing with some sleazy aspects of things, is that bathroom scene that you mentioned. Uh, and also the, uh, shall we call it, the eventual Russian roulette scene where it feels as if this is supposed to be seen as some kind of out there sleaziness. We, we do get that one glimpse <laughs> where, where our poor protagonist, uh, Bob Crane, is shutting the windows of the hotel room that he's staying in and sees this beautiful black woman across the way through the window masturbating on her bed. Uh, and it's like, okay, see, that's just a, that's, that's a little bit of sleaze, but that is the perfect, that scene where he looks out the window, sees this woman masturbating across, you know, across in another uh, room and then discreetly closes the, the drapes instead of doing what a normal human being would do and stand there and watch. <sighs> Sorry, don't mean to be a pervert, but come on. That seems to me to be the perfect way to kind of encapsulate the way this movie deals with sleaze, which is to give you a look at it, acknowledge that it's there, and then discreetly close the blinds. It's very Mm -hmm. strange the way this movie treats the sleazier aspects of what is in the story. Uh, And there are some sleazy things, but they're, they're part of it, but... They're acknowledged and then kind of pushed to the side. And then they're acknowledged and kind of pushed to the side. Uh, and, it, and, it's, and it's really strange. I don't know if that's because they, were, they thought that they were aping what an American creator of a film like this would do. Like you say, like a De Palma or, uh, or not. But I don't know. De Palma seemed to lean a little bit heavier into the sleaze. I mean, think, my God, man, Body Double doesn't take place in the fashion world. It takes place in the porno industry. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. So that's not how I approached it, but that's a really great sort of uh, observation. I guess for me, like when you're talking about the woman masturbating and and him watching her in the window, I think that's great. You're right. He does close the blinds, and that's kind of a testament to the type of character that uh, Bob Crane was. But also there's a lot about voyeurism in this movie, like Body Double, but I think that's making more of a commentary about looking and being looked at because models are about being looked at. Their whole existence is mm-hmm. is to be seen, and he doesn't see them the way other people see them in the film, you know. And also, there's that great scene towards the beginning where he's trying to locate his sister, and he goes to see that really overdramatic fashion photographer, and. He has that whole speech about how the that's where the title comes from. The, they're beautiful. You give them a pretty dress, but there's nothing underneath. Right. And there's nothing beyond the exterior. And I didn't know your sister. I went to the club with her, but I don't know her. And then he holds up his camera and reflected in the lens is Bob. And it's like he sees himself for the first time, right, in this sort of fish out of water, like he has no idea what's going on. And, and there's all these scenes of looking. And so, like, later on, when Bob hooks up with the Renee Simonson character, and um, we can talk about that because that's a really amazing and important scene, but he goes into her room, and you think they're going to have sex, and she said, someone's watching us. Right. And and they look out, and there's that... I, I thought it was the same woman that was masturbating, but I'm not positive because you don't see her. It's just a silhouette. And she says, leave 
the blinds open. And at first, I thought she meant she wanted to be watched, but she didn't. She just didn't want to have sex with him. She made a decision, you know. And so there's a lot of stuff going on about what it's like to be seen. And then there's another scene where um, Donald Pleasance is at another hotel, and he's interviewing this woman that runs the hotel, and this model walks down the hall, and she's not wearing a top. Yeah. And he just looks at her, and she's very casual about her nude, which models are, I think, in general. And and then she just goes away, and he has only a semi-reaction to it. And um, and I think it's interesting the way that the lead men are sort of, like, not as into the voyeurism aspect as, say, the bad guy, who's the guy who costs Jessica in the bar. And so um, oh, yeah. I, th- I think that they're doing something I'd have to... F- form my thoughts more about it but when I was watching the film I was feeling like there was a commentary on voyeurism and what it's like to be seen and not be seen and what does that mean right and so to somebody whose whole career is built on being seen and so I think that you're right I think that they're showing things and then pulling back but part of that has to do with the fact that the character of Bob is pulling back as well so so if we're watching the movie through Bob's point of view I think it makes sense that there would be borderline sleaze, but that he would sort of um, turn it Back off. away from it, yeah. Yeah, and so because that's what he does. And so, um, so I thought it was almost like the voyeuristic aspect of it was almost like a second character or a character trait to help us with Bob's point of view. That's kind of how I saw it. I can definitely see that. I, I, I do think that um, part of why... The, the they're kind of pulling back is illustrated by that that scene where he close you know where he he doesn't you know, he closes the window instead of you know instead of standing there and staring out out the window at the sleaze he's he's the film is taking his point of view he's our he's our central character he's who we're fo- who we are following through this entire thing well it's clear she wants to be seen because she has the window open and and it looks out to many different windows but it's interesting because just for us I had a flash here. And I have to go back to make sure I've remembered this right. But one of my all-time favorite movies is The Toolbox Murders. And you know that girl that in the famous, like, what do we call that, nail gun scene? The the night before, she's dancing. And I think she draws the blinds before she goes to do her thing, which is to masturbate. And so, like, it's like, clearly this woman is looking to be seen. And he rejects that aspect, right? And so it's kind of yeah. this really interesting thing that he does. Well, I think... And this is this is something I, I wasn't sure how how much I wanted to tease this out, but no pun intended. <laughs> well, didn't yeah, it, it, precisely. But uh, the idea of watching someone masturbate seems to me to be the height of quote unquote safe sex. And in 1985, we're talking about hmm. the rise of the HIV crisis, in which. Uh, the, the the madness that is abstinence-only sex education here in the States became some kind of psychotic way of attempting to continue to c- control your children's libidos. But also, at the same time, if you're involving... If, if characters are repeatedly involved in uh, solo masturbation as opposed to forming relationships, it becomes a question of... Uh, is this uh, something that's there because of the, the burgeoning... HIV crisis that was, you know, by 1984-85 was definitely part of the news. 
or is this uh, another commentary within the film about the, uh, the the relationships that these people can and cannot have? In other words, are, are, are they completely unsatisfied by the people around them and therefore having to seek some kind of solace within themselves? I, I, I don't know. It's it's probably way more than this movie or anybody involved with it was was thinking. It's probably me just reading further and further into something because I'm staring at it too long. But you're right. This woman's, you know, had her window open and was clearly doing this within view of not just Bob's window, but anyone in that particular wing of the building. So is this her... Is this some, uh, you know, slight sexual perversion of that that woman that she wants that to be out there? That this is something. In other words, does it enhance it for her, or uh, is it uh, something that is supposed to tell us more about the the person who's not willing to watch than the people who are willing to watch? And uh, like I say, I'm probably thinking too much about this. No, but that's really interesting. And so much we're getting so much out of a masturbation scene that literally lasts like fifteen seconds. But it's like <laughs> but it is kind of compelling because you're right, because all these characters as we come to know them are like kind of basic, you know, in not necessarily I think the girl's name is Carrie, the one girl that approaches Bob and says, I'm at this room at the hotel scholar, which is where his sister had been staying, and come see me because she's, you know, a component to the mystery. But also like she has there's compassion there, right? Yeah. And understanding and fear, of course, for her own life. But like, like, so I don't think that they're, they're completely without emotion or um, compassion, but there's definitely a disconnect, you know, with a lot of the women in the hotel, you don't really see them interacting with each other all that much. And there's that, you know, it's interesting too, that the fact, and I can't remember Renee Simonson's character's name, but like when Tom Shanley and her develop a a relationship, her, her name's Barbara. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's right, Barbara and Bob. Barb and Bob, which is like the most unexotic name for the most exotic couple I've ever seen. And they met in Milan, Italy. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, there's he never asks her, do you know my sister? Never once does that question come into play. And I think it's because there is that disconnect, and I think he instantly ties into it or connects with it. Um, He connects with the disconnection, which is a weird sentence. But, like, (laughs) you know, it's it's interesting to me that they live in the same hotel, and he never once said, have you ever met? met my sister and um and that really stuck out to me watching it this time and so i think that there is a general sort of commentary maybe a little scathing about the fashion industry and that these women and people in the industry like that photographer and the man who i don't know what he does to get his money but the bad guy in the movie that they like they're all near each other but there's they nobody ever really connects you yeah, know, and I yeah. think that that maybe that scene sort of amplifies that on a on a metaphorical level in the subtext, and I think it works. And I think you brought up a really interesting point. Well, I think that the 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 thing about this is that if you want to look at this movie as a uh, as a as an examination of uh, the characters within it, what you what you would see immediately is that everybody in this movie, except for a couple of things that that stand out and that I'll mention in a moment, they're all involved with each other on simply a a surface level. And that, of course, is part and parcel of the industry with which they work within. Uh, You know, that's all anyone is interested in getting from them in the first place. And so that's really all anyone pays attention to when dealing with them. But the relationships within it that stand out are, of course, the, the relationship between the twins that you know that drives the, the the story in the first place. The relationship between Bob and uh, the Donald Pleasant's uh, police character, 
which becomes a very warm kind of, like I say, grandfatherly type of relationship between the two of them, which is re- which is really well done and well handled because the movie lets you have enough time with the two of them talking to each other to get a feel for what they what they uh, what they're like together, uh, and that is just about it. Those are the those are the two re- relationships that stand out as something other than a uh, a surface relationship. The movie teases that whole thing about um, Barbara, you know, him him coming into the room with Barbara and the two of them starting to to make out, and then her deciding that that it's probably a bad idea for them to to actually have sex. It's it's that is that is the one thing in the movie where it could that the two of them getting together could have been the start of another you know relationship that was beyond the facade that was beyond the surface but of course the movie has a completely different tack to take with the barbara character and that's just not going to happen and so what is uh, also isn't it it, it it is kind of the standard within these movies to have uh, a, a a flirtatious romance if not outright sexual dalliance within the body of the film but with the protagonist and and some someone who either uh, ends up being involved in the in the uh, mystery or tangentially uh, somehow you know <laughs> provides a clue that gets the the protagonist closer to figuring out what the mystery actually is but the uh, the fact that this movie shies away from that uh, it, it, what what's great is that the movie has already set you up with the main character to think that he you know, might be a little repressed or a bit of a prude, and therefore him being so willing to not jump into bed with this woman, even though it just seems like at that point in the story it's the most obvious thing to do. Um, the, the movie's already set you up with the idea that this is a, this is the kind of guy who would be nice enough to not push that kind of thing. As a matter of fact, he might think himself a bit rude to have pressed it in the first place. And so I think the, that, that that's really smart of the script writing to kind of give you as a viewer more than one way to think about that scene because it becomes, as we'll talk about later on, becomes rather important in the, uh, the final act. Yeah, it does. It does. And I think it also like, it's just, it's just consistent with his character, you know, to, yeah. to keep him like honest, but also like he would have had sex with her if she was consensual to it. And so like, it's not like he's never done anything like this. He's not just like a total virgin. He's just a fish out of water, you know, learning to uh, get his bearings in this situation where he knows nothing about the, the world that his sister lives in. But yeah, like I'm really excited to talk about kind of the scene again when we get to the end of the film, but I don't know if you want to talk about prior to this scene is that fashion show that we were talking about. And, um, so, like, in their pursuit to find his sister, they come into... So, this girl, Carrie, who had approached Bob, gets murdered. And then, all of a sudden, Donald Pleasant's character is like, okay, now we have a body. And we have somebody who looks like was connected to her. And I think now we have a real case. And we have to start looking hard for your sister. Right. And as things progress, they there's another woman that they realize has is connected to the two of these other women, the sister and Carrie. And... They find out that she's gone off to this a fashion show to do a job, and they go to see it, the runway show, and to you know interrogate her. But she takes off, and um, and she, I guess we we forgot to mention the diamonds 
So they're all connected yeah. by diamonds. And so I don't think the police know this, but then, but you see it early on that Carrie has this like handful of diamonds before she's murdered. And then this other woman has diamonds as well. And then she's murdered, but she's murdered and the police come to where she's been killed just quick enough that the killer can't take the diamonds that she has on her. And then that's when they start to see that there's other stuff happening. Um, and so like the fashion show itself, like we talked about is really authentic. And as you said, it was a real fashion show and I love it because I don't know exactly how they shot it, but like she's doing the whole runway act and they're just standing there at the side and they're just waiting for her. And every time she comes out, there's a, she's more and more panicked about what's happening until she finally just bolts off the stage and just Mm. keeps going. And like, and it's amazing, you know, because you can't just run off with somebody's clothes like that, you know? And, um, (laughs) and it's, and you're like, somebody's going to get in trouble for that. And, uh, and so like, and she's, she's kind of a nothing character in that we don't get to know her very well. But then that's what leads him to taking Renee Simonson or Barb back to her room because he's trying to be, like, very careful because somebody's out killing the models. And right now they don't understand the full connection. They just think all these women at the Hotel Scala are potential victims, you know, of yeah. whoever is killing everybody. And then they get to the Barb scene. And then um, – and I think Bob is really, like, growing into <sighs> – He's kind of understanding things, but I think he's building some confidence as the film grows about, like, what he's doing. Like, his mission keeps becoming deeper and deeper and more important. And so, um, but he still he still has this, like, um, what I want to say, this not air of innocence, but he's respectful of these women as well. You know, he hasn't been yeah. tainted by the industry. But at the same time, I think he's learning to work within it, you know, and so it's kind of interesting. The, 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 the first moment we get where it feels as if Bob has finally uh, decided that he's going to, that he's, he's well, well it, it, it's where he becomes a bit more of a, 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 a complicated character is the moment where uh, he does not tell the Donald Pleasance character uh, mm. that he's going to go check out this one, this one particular clue because he's gotten this, at, the, at this point in the story, it does appear that the most obvious person to be the killer would actually be Bob's sister, who at this point is just missing. Uh, they can't. There's no body. There's no nothing. So as far as anybody's, you know, she may be alive or she may be dead. But uh, there comes a certain point when everything points to it poss- being very possible that his sister is actually the person who's killed these two people. He he's gotten a note that supposedly or a telegram supposedly from yeah a telegram from his sister. Saying, look, you know, trying to tell him, just go home. Everything's fine. Don't worry about me. And he decides to not tell the Donald Pleasant's cop character and to go and check this thing out himself to see if he can find his sister uh, using this as a clue. And that is the first point in the movie where he does something other than be a a very, you know, uh, upfront, straightforward kind of character this is the first time he hides anything and he of course he has the best motivations in the world is that he he's worried that he's he needs to protect his sister it's the first moment where we see some change in the character although it it builds perfectly out of what we already know about him yeah it also like um so he gets this telegram from his sister and he gets on this train and he goes to some parts unknown in Italy. And he's trying to get a look at the original telegram so he can look at the signature and see if it matches um, the signature that his sister had sent him when she sent. She was on the cover of a magazine at the beginning of the movie. He gets the magazine and she's written a little letter to him on the cover. 
And so he wants to see if the signatures match. And the girl at the telegram office is like, I can't give that to you. And she's got this little, I think it's a gerbil or something or hamster. I'm not sure. Some kind of adorable little creature. And and <laughs> she's like, like. Somewhat like something on your desk currently. Yes, absolutely. I know I have such a sweet spot for the little critters. And, and she was like, um, you know, he's not eating. And him being the park ranger animal lover that he is, it's like, well, why don't you put him away from the window? Because the traffic's probably scaring him. And so she does. And I love this scene. I think it's really pivotal in a way. And um, and so she does. And, of course, he starts eating immediately. And then she completely warms up to Bob and gives him the original telegram so he can match the signature. And I love that because you're right. Bob is doing something here where he's decided not to be totally up front with this police officer who's been really amazing to him. And although he almost tells him at one point but decides not to. And then, and then yet he's still this really sweet, genuine guy who's like helping this woman, even though she told him she's not going to help him with the signature, he, he goes out of his way to give advice so that she can help her little pet, you know, eat. Yeah. And, and I love that. And I think that that just enforces the type of character that Bob is. And I think that's what makes him so compelling and so watchable and um, somebody that we're completely rooting for throughout the whole film because there's he's just such a good person, you know. And you're right, his overall motivation is to just protect his sister. I mean, everything comes out of a place of love for him, you know, really, when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, before we, we take a quick run through a, a, a pretty decent little plot synopsis here that I've that I've got, uh, I do want to do want to circle back to your your comment about uh, naming the main character Bob Crane. Uh, yeah. There are, things, there are two things about it that, and I don't know if these are going to be the same two things that that kind of uh, lit up your brain about this, but it's okay. So we have Bob and Jessica, Bob and Jessica Crane, these two um, these two twins. Uh, well. Crane, C-R-A-N-E, just seems to me to be a, a callback to uh, the, the Janet Lee character in Psycho. Mm. Oh, which, interesting. So she's she's, Mar- she's Marion Crane. Yes, right. And it, it just seems to me that uh, if that's something that had occurred to someone watching this, that would have been a clue as to where the movie goes in a very interesting way. But oh. also, by naming... Uh, the main protagonist, Bob Crane, I'm immediately thinking of the actor Bob Crane, i.e. Yes. the guy from Hogan's Heroes. And, of course, you don't have to watch Autofocus to find out just what kind of life he led <laughs> and to be a little concerned that uh, a character of such opposite sexual proclivities uh, as the character within this movie would be named Bob Crane. It's just a little strange. It is, but it's also like, um, when you think about it, so Bob Crane, you know, liked to videotape himself having sex with women, and mm. the the Bob Crane in real life. And this movie is also about us kind of a voyeurism as well. So yeah. um, I could see, like, I don't know why they came up with the name Bob Crane, if they just thought it sounded really American. But when I was watching it, I mean, that's where Probably. my mind went. Yeah. That one, and that is one of the things. That's always one of the amusing things. Okay, let's let's be let's be honest. One of the side joys, one of the little small joys that I get out of European cult cinema of all types, are the uh, Europeans attempting to sound and act and create uh, things that feel authentically American, and uh, sometimes missing the mark horrendously sometimes missing the mark as if they were aiming their dart at not just the wrong board but perhaps at a car sitting outside where they should be throwing the dart 
Uh, and I'm t- I, of course, it, it crops up in different ways. My favorites are always the uh, the the signs in English that are in har- that are that that are just completely wrong. You know, like do no do no entry or things like that. <laughs> no, 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 no. They, those are my favorites. I have to admit because they're they're freeze frameable. You can look at them and study them and kind of be amused and show them to people. But the choice of names, it. it it's as if they're aiming for, okay, the most bland or the most common, probably the most common, name that they can come up with that sounds like an American name. Whereas, as an American, and I don't know if you feel this way or not, but it seems to me like there are so many, in my experience, my God, man, I'm, I'm in my 50s. These, there, there are so many names that are, to me, are just normal American names that do not involve Bob, or Dick, or Harry, <laughs> yeah. take the the three most common that are joked about all you know all the time, and it just seems to me that it's like there's all this work. I think I think they spent too much time for decades trying to figure out what's what's a good bland American name that everybody will believe is an American name, and just going honestly, if you're an American, you can have any freaking name in the world. <laughs> it doesn't really seem to occur. It doesn't really seem to matter. It doesn't need to be named Tom. Okay, he really doesn't. You can actually have a two-syllable first name, yeah. maybe even a, maybe even three if you want to stretch things. It's it's completely possible. But when you talk about Americana, I, I instantly flash back, and I wanted to mention this at the beginning, and I totally forgot. When he has that first vision of his sister, he asks one of the rangers, because he's out and about in the park, to call his sister at this hotel, hotel number that she'd given him on the, on the cover of that magazine she'd sent. And the operator, do you remember the operator? She had this horrendous blonde wig, like Dolly Parton wig, and she was oh sitting God, at the desk. Yeah. And she's like, this is the operator with like a semi-accent. And and it's it's like, are they just trying to make her look like what they think an American operator looks like? Because this is clearly <laughs> just a really bodacious woman in a really weird wig. And she's doing her nails, right? Like Mrs. O'Wiggins on the Carol Burnett show. And it's just like, exactly. And it's like, yes. is this what you think operators look like? But that scene is also really important because we're watching the sister, we're watching a pair of scissors coming after the sister. And we're not quite sure what happens. But the operator, she's looking for the um, extension for Milan, spills her nail polish and red runs out completely over her the Milan code and it's actually yeah. this really stylish scene but it's set up so strangely at the beginning that it's like it's really distracting that's the only part that's like that where i feel like they're trying to overly make things look american at that point but yeah. um but it really stood out to me and um and i loved it because i was like that's just somebody's weird fantasy about like an operator in like wyoming <laughs> you know what i mean Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree. I'd forgotten about the uh, the bewigged operator. Yes, and definitely uh, Mrs. Wiggins, or uh, or or possibly that uh, operator character Lily Tomlin played for yeah. years in different sketches. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd forgotten about that little part. Well, here's a here's a question. This was a period of time in the '80s here, um, where uh, because of uh, these these tax deals and these these that different states were. Uh, allowing uh, filmmakers a number of European films of not particularly large budgets were actually being able to be shot here in the States and of course part of this movie the very beginning of this movie is actually shot uh, in uh, in Yellowstone 
And, uh, of course, the rest of the movie does take place in Milan. He flies to Milan to, to see his sister, and that's the, you know, that's the end of that stuff. But uh, it, is, it is a smart way to... They, they front-load the obviously American footage, the stuff that was clearly shot here in the States. And it's one of those things where it, this is a very smart way of, of making a movie like this because, hey, we're not fooling around. See, Americans, we're really in America. So Bob, Bob is our main character yeah. and we're actually in Yellowstone Park. So <laughs> the, I, I, I have, a, I have a, an abiding fascination. Don't get me wrong. I think that the, the, the period of the 70s uh, is primarily the, the best area for these types of films made in Italy or made in Spain or made in anywhere in Europe because they just there's a there's a certain flavor and and style to them that uh, the that got that they moved away from more and more in the 80s but the thing about the 80s movies that I find endlessly fascinating the the ones made you know by low budget um, Italian exploitation filmmakers the is that aspect that just suddenly you'll be actually in Louisiana you know or at, you know you'll actually be in some you know, you'll be in Florida you know like uh, or Atlanta you know like uh, uh, Antonio Margheriti making um uh, can, uh, can, cannibal Holocaust in That's right. um, oh, cannibal, or apocalypse. Can, uh, cannibal Apocalypse I'm sorry in Atlanta Georgia and it clearly obviously really being shot in Atlanta there's no you know it's, that's where it's, that's where it's being filmed and uh, that that I love that aspect of these things because they're doing it for various reasons one the uh, the most obvious one is they're still tr- they're, st- they're still trying to find ways to to fool an audience into thinking that this is not 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 an Italian movie, but also at the same time, it adds this this layer of fascination for me because some of these are these bizarre little time capsules of these places where. Um, there are things in these movies that you just won't see in other types of movies, especially not movies that were actually made by Americans because we just kind of take this shit for granted. And so nobody's really going to train a camera on it. Uh, I was recently watching, um, Oh darn it. One of the uh, late eighties, Jose LaRoz films. Um, Oh, edge of the ax because that, that movie, I wrote the liner notes for that. And, and that movie I wrote about, um, how it tries so hard to insert all this Americana, Mm-hmm. into the film and yet at the same time it's clearly european and those universes that get built by those types of films are like no other universe you're ever going to go into and i love it i love when they when they they're building a piece of americana but based off of a european sensibility of what americana is you can't yes. duplicate that anywhere on the planet and so those movies in particular that came out in the 80s are, do do that exactly and i think it makes them like almost like fever dreams and so it's easier for me to buy things if they're semi-illogical because the whole thing already looks so part of my french fucked up from reality that yes you just kind of dive into everything that way. And I think it actually aids the film. I think sometimes when the movies are more outrageous and it, it's strange, but it actually helps my willing suspension of disbelief. I, yes. I, it, it makes it more easy to accept whatever insane thing I'm being shown within the movie. If it is constructing this somewhat realistic, but completely artificial world that it feels like this bizarre melding of European sensibilities and actual locations within the country I reside in. It's strange, but that is one of the, the real fascinations I have for the, the European exploitation stuff created in the 80s and the early 90s. 
Yeah, well, it's definitely like they're cultural artifacts in that way because, like, so I think TV movies are cultural artifacts because they tend to be really topical by nature or they're coded in topical ways. Like, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark is about feminism, but it's also a monster movie, you know? And so yeah. it's important because at the time, second wave feminism was at its height. And so this way, just like I said, you're looking at, like, a, a foreigner's perspective of America. A really good... Um, example of that and it's been a long time since i've seen it and i can't even remember the director's name but he was a foreign director and he went to canada and he made a movie called deadline do you know what i'm talking about about the writer who um has writer's block and it's like this really weird i can't even explain the movie he has all these different weird fantasies and i think the fantasies start to bleed over into reality and he's commenting wow, no I, I don't think oh, i know this film wow it's like it's like it's almost like a, a commentary on stephen king i think they even referenced the writer is supposed to be like a stephen king type and it's it just came out through one of these great companies recently and i highly recommend it but like he was i can't remember what country he was from and but it was like the middle east or india or somewhere like that and it was amazing because i think he was he was commenting on how he thought america looked in a canadian film but through a filmmaker that was so far removed from anything that american or canadian that it, it was it was like a really biting commentary at the end of it to me. Um, and so I thought that that was really fascinating. So yeah, I love when people try to like build a location based off their own personal perspective of what that location would look like or what it represents. Cause so now we're actually seeing sort of a European ideology of Americana, you know, and that, that makes it interesting. It makes you kind of understand other parts of the world and how they viewed us. Well, they, they create such a, a bizarre alternate reality. It's, um, the first place I ever ran across it is in uh, the completely batshit insane movie Pieces. Oh, um, yeah. Yes, that's which, right. That's so good. I mean, I saw... you got to understand, when that movie came out here in the States, I saw it in the theaters. I oh. saw it. I was, a, I was a teenager. I saw that thing. I was living in a boarding school and went to see Pieces in the theater. Uh, and and I, I was... Absolutely, of course. I, I can't. I'm sure that there are areas of my brain that were twisted forever because of seeing that film when I was a teenager. But at the same time, the world it presents is not recognizable, even to me as a teenager who'd never been outside of the southeastern United States. I knew there was no way in fucking hell that was taking that that was actually being shot anywhere near boston or anywhere near anything in the states there was no way any of that had any basis in you know a a, a regional reality it just it is so alien everything is so strange and yet part of the movie's charm not the biggest parts of it because there's so many ridiculous aspects to pieces that it's it's hard to nail down which is your favorite but one of the smaller aspects of it that really kind of make me enjoy returning to it again and again is this bizarre fake you know made in spain version of the northeast of the united states that just rings completely completely false but strangely alluring in a way oh it, yeah it, it's enti it's enticing in a bizarre fashion i it makes zero sense most of the time that this is taking place in a physical reality that anyone could ever walk into but it's amazing and, and, and like i say that that being my first encounter with that kind of thing it shouldn't be that much of a shock that you know decades later i'm still attracted to this this aspect of uh, you know the 80s and early 90s european exploitation filmmaking aesthetic 
wow, I'm going to throw that word out talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the idea that that, um, that kind of bleeds over into my enjoyment of all of these things uh, and will actually make me enjoy a movie a little bit more and give a little bit more credit to a film that probably doesn't deserve it very much. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, the thing is, it's like for every, every, every movie that I will staunchly defend as something that I honestly think that you could take pretty much seriously like Edge of the Axe, um, there, there is on the other hand something like pieces where it's like, okay. There's no defense for it. You just need to ride this roller coaster and go along with it. And that's that aspect of unreality in in the setting is just a, a nice little piece that adds to the adds to the to the flavoring for me. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, pieces does it times ten. It's like it's like dropping a tab of acid for ninety minutes and just being like, all right, just let it happen. Because even the dialogue and like. And like its view of all the women are like super hypersexualized, and Kendall well, somehow is the stud of the campus. Not that he's not attractive, but it's just like hilarious that he's like betting all uh, these women. And they've got that kung fu guy, you know, oh no, that's like ba- bad chop suey. <laughs> it, it, and we said it all together. That's amazing. It's so crazy, and it makes it really fun. Now this movie t- takes it's much more serious, and I guess the fact that it does take place in Milan, uh, Carlo Benzina is actually within his own element. But the yes. opening scene, I think they are trying to like really hit it over your head that we're in America. He's American. This is the all American guy, and like with the all American <laughs> job, and he's out in nature, and like you know, and it's like it's like really overplaying it to a way. But I don't think into a way where it makes it ridiculous. I just think that they're really emphasizing. Um, how American this man is. So I guess when they drop him off in Italy and it's so different, you know what I mean? He does, has no idea what's going on. Even the way he dresses in just his jeans mm-hmm. and his flannels makes him stand out, you know? Well, I think the movie smartly is attempting to, I would say the script probably is trying very, very smartly to draw an immediate distinction between this man whose entire life is spent, you know, outdoors. That's his job. And and then he the, he's placed not you know he is that fish out of water who is for the rest of the film in a completely urban setting, and uh, it's just another one of those visual things that you don't necessarily have to pick up on you know consciously that draws the distinction that shows you that this is a guy who's in a place that he is just not used to, right. and uh, there's a there's a lot of that kind of smart filmmaking smart storytelling within this movie it, it made me uh, respect. Uh, the director because you know you don't you don't shepherd a story like this uh, to the screen without having thought about some of this stuff probably not nearly as much of the stuff about masturbation as I went on about yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> well that's but, like a paper still. right there like you could write a whole scene I think literally and now I want to write an entire paper on that scene because I think it's actually um, in a strange way become a metaphor for the overall tone of the film and some of the ideas that the director was reaching out to comment on. And so it's actually, the more I think about it, the more it's actually kind of an important scene. And I sort of love that it's there. It's not just salacious. It's got commentary to it, you know, which makes it, so much better and so just real briefly Carlo Venzina I don't know much about him I think this is the only film of his I've actually ever seen regrettably but he was a really big name in Italy and I was in Scotland I don't know like two years ago and I was at a conference an academic conference for film and there was a woman there from Italy and she was a film studies professor and I wish I could remember her name she was delightful and I asked her 
I said, do you know who Carlo Vanzina is? I love nothing underneath. And she actually was like taken aback that I heard of his name. And she and he had just passed away like two months prior to me doing this conference. And she's like, you know who Carlo Vanzina is? And I was like, well, yeah, I just know this one film, but it's amazing. And she's like, oh, he's so big in Italy, but he never really got famous out of the country. And she was like, do you really know who he is? And of course I know who he is because he did this movie. And but he was a really, really big name there. And um, and so I think when we're commenting on some of these things in the film, I don't th- I don't think it's wrong of us to maybe overemphasize things that maybe we feel like we're putting our own intent into it, which we may be. But I think he was um, a prolific and profound filmmaker. And so I think a lot of this may have been intentional, too. We're just picking up on it because we're, we're kind of picking it apart more now for the podcast. But I do think a lot of these elements, Vinzina are meant to be in there. I, you may well be right, because when I look at his list of credits, uh, I, you're right. I think this is the only movie of his that I've ever seen. I don't think that most of his movies made it out outside of Europe in general, which I think is a damn shame, because, I mean, he was he was making films constantly from the 80s all the way through the 90s up to, I think, up to when he passed away. And I look at some of the titles, I started reading the descriptions of some of these movies, and it's like, man, I'd like to see some of, some of them, you know, some of them, like the comedies and things like that. I, I know I know what my mileage is with Italian comedies, and it ain't far. But some <laughs> of the, and, and, but, but I look at some of these movies, and I think, you know, some of these look really interesting. And uh, the, the, you know, it's like, I don't know about if I want to see, you know, his Christmas movie from 1999, but at the same time, uh, one about a hunchback from 1994. I'm like, what? Okay, wait a minute. What's this about? Let me let me check this out. And there's this this uh, film about uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, granted, it, it's listed as a comedy as well. But just looking at some of the images from it, I'm thinking, well, that might be watching. That might, might worth be worth watching. Plus, you know, it it's it has a role for Anna Falci from. Uh, from Della Morte Della More, and it's like I can always watch more of her. Uh, but <laughs> it's, but it's the you know the 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 thing is is you're right. This guy is kind of hidden from us because yeah, this is the only movie we've ever seen by him, at least the two of us. But he made he made like in some cases two movies a year through the '90s and the early 2000s. This guy was popular and successful and that's a whole world of filmmaking that we just know nothing about over here yeah it's tragic and also you know he co-wrote this with his brother he came he came from a filmmaking family so his father was a writer and director and he did a movie and i knew i was going to remember the name of it and i've totally forgotten it's got execution in the title it came out in the 70s and i think it's kind of well known but um so he came from this filmmaking family and um and he co-wrote i don't know if he did a lot of stuff with his brother but i know he co-wrote the script with him um and also Franco Farini, who, you know, did stuff like Phenomena, right? He did a lot of Argento stuff, Sleepless, yeah. Trauma. Um, and he also did Demons 1 and 2 with Lamberto Bava. And Lamberto Bava is a whole other thing. He's amazing. And so, like, um, so we've got this guy who's worked heavily with, like, the heavy hitters of the Italian films that made it over to the States in the horror genre. And then he's got his brother and himself, who's a prolific filmmaker, all working on this film. So, yeah, I think that a lot of what we're reading in it is intentional and and meant to be there. And I think that a lot of heart went into making this movie. I just feel like you can feel it when you're watching it. I mean, I know I can. Well, um, I tell you what, I've got uh, an interesting little plot synopsis of the film here. Let's uh, let's take a run through this, because I think anytime you go through a, a, a fairly detailed plot synopsis, it will it will remind us of things that we want to speak about. Uh, so I tell you what, let's uh, let's take a, a break here. 
uh, and we'll uh, we'll come back and we'll dive into this plot synopsis and see what uh, see what synapses within our brains this fires up. Okay. Okay. I've never much cared for sources the color of blood. The, the paper said that uh, Carrie was at Giorgio Poloni's house before she was killed. Right. He's pretty well known here in Milano, a jeweler. Lots of money, lots of girls, lots of parties. She went home with him last night. But somewhere or other they had an argument and she went back to the hotel by herself. So you think he's clean? No. But he has a cast iron alibi. At least 50 people saw him in a nightclub at the time of the murder. This killer could be uh, some kind of nutcase who hates models. Or he could be uh, someone hired by someone or other in the fashion world. Christ, I don't know. You ask me, they're all crazy. Agencies, models, photographers, money, drugs. Another planet for me. Wrong. It's the planet Earth, just another aspect. We work with photographs too, you know? Identikits, mug shots. And our lineups are just a variation on a fashion parade. The only difference is fashions are seasonal, murder isn't. It's a year-round occurrence. All right, folks, let's take a run through a plot synopsis of Nothing Underneath. Uh, this is this is interesting. This is, a, this is a pretty good little plot synopsis. And, it, and Amanda, if at any point in time there's something specific that you want to discuss or there's, uh, there's something that I'm bringing up or mentioning in this plot synopsis that you want to elaborate on, please feel free to interrupt me. That's the joy because I know exactly how this is going to go is that if you restrain yourself and decide not to say something, you're going to forget it, just, just like I do every time. So interrupt me at, at will. It will not be a problem, okay? Okay. You got it. All right. So uh, Bob Crane is a forest ranger working in Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. And his twin sister Jessica is a runway model working in Milan, Italy. One day, Bob has a powerful premonition that his sister has come into great harm. He has a vision involving scissors and violence. And he even has a physical reaction where he seems to be having his, uh, he seems to be having his uh, own right arm being twisted behind him as is happening simultaneously to his sister over in Italy. A call to her hotel does not provide any answers, so Bob travels to Milan to investigate. You know, like you do. Yeah. <laughs> After realizing that his sister is missing, Bob goes to Commissioner Danasi. Uh, it's Danasi, yeah. Played by Donald Pleasance. And pleads for him to open a case on his sister. And uh, this, this, is a, this is a really great scene because uh, I, I do like how they kind of, uh, they, they dance around the, difference, the different laws in different countries that allow you to claim that someone is missing. Uh, the number of hours that have passed by. They do talk about how, you know, it's been like, uh, at that point, like 72 hours or something like that. And uh, so you see, you kind of see Donald Pleasance's character kind of weighing the his options on whether or not he's going to do anything about this or whether or not she's, because he, he does provide, you're, you mentioned earlier, he does provide some very obvious reasons for uh, someone in her profession to be uh, incommunicado for a period of time. Right. Uh, 
But does, uh, Danasi is skeptical about uh, Bob's claim of empathic communication with his sister, and without concrete evidence, he is unable to do much to help. Bob then goes off on his own to try to find his sister. His travels put him in touch with another model named Carrie, who seems to know something about what has been going on. However, the next night, she is found murdered in her hotel room. And the film shows us that it is uh, a similar type of murder to what uh, Bob seems to have seen happening to his sister because it involves scissors. Uh, and we didn't mention the black yeah. gloves. There's also there's also where she uh, drops the diamond under the bed and she goes under the bed to um, retrieve it and she sees a pair of shoes mm-hmm. that she thinks are strangers and she keeps lifting up the curtain that goes around the bed and it's just a pair of sneakers that she has and that is in a De Palma movie is it is it dressed oh. to kill oh I think it um that does yeah I think it's in dressed to kill you're right yeah so that's a we've talked about his influence De Palma's influence over this film and and that was a scene that struck me um as a De Palma-esque as well well there are, yeah we, we, we've already talked about the number of uh, I'll be kind and say uh influences Brian De Palma's thrillers uh, have on this film. Uh, And of course, if you're going to be making a movie of this type, uh, Brian De Palma was, you know, the American who was making money hand over fist for years doing this. I mean, uh, once, I mean, once Obsession was a mild hit, you know, there was, you know, Obsession was a mild hit, which kind of fits into this Hitchcockian vein of, uh, of uh, attempting to do uh, a giallo and you know a giallo style film in America, but by the time you get to Dress to Kill, which was both incredibly controversial for its violence and, and uh, blowout. But it, it's it just real quick. It's interesting what you said because um, Van Zina is riffing on De Palma, but De Palma was riffing on Hitchcock. So you're almost kind of seeing like I don't know like a ripoff of a ripoff in a way well, I, which is I, but also but also unique in its own way but it's yeah. kind of interesting i see it almost i used to think of de palma as uh the consummate hitchcock ripoff artist but as i've gotten older and i i've just kind of seen more and more uh films of this type as time passes i realize what's really happening is not so much uh one filmmaker ripping off another but one filmmaker essentially kind of taking the elements that he enjoyed or that were successful in past films and building upon them or create or crafting their own versions thereof, which is as far yeah. as I can tell pretty much what everybody does. So you can, you know, cause De Palma was fed a lot of shit for a lot of years for yeah. uh, being uh, you know, a wannabe Hitchcock or, or what, you know, whatever, you know, yeah, I should have reworded that because I love De Palma. I do too. And I, I don't mean to say that he's ripping off. I'm saying ripping off is like the short-changed word, but yeah. yeah. No, I mean, his movies are so amazing. It's like not even funny what a good filmmaker he is. Oh, I didn't take it. I didn't take it as you uh, speak, you know, speaking poorly of the, of, of De Palma. I just, it's just that, that I started out with that thought process as well, you know, when I was younger of, well, you know, he's ripping this off and he's ripping that off. And it's like, yeah, everybody borrows things. Everybody takes things from other places. And, uh, me, me being a, a big fan of uh, classic, uh, pulp literature from the twenties, thirties, forties, I can tell you right now that almost every thriller I've ever seen was done on the page in, in, in some pulp magazine during that period of time. Yeah. And whether, whether the person who's making a movie that's, 
similar to that now knows it or not. That's the genesis for a lot of these stories being put into the to the uh, American public mind in the first place. Is trust me, we're all borrowing. We may not even know we're borrowing when we're doing it, but that's the way this happens. And it's like the 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 real joy. This is what I've always said about movies. Is like what I require from a movie is a good story well told. If you can manage that, everything else is superfluous. How you get there is going to add joy to my life and make me enjoy your movie a bit more or a bit less. But as long as you can do what is required with a movie, which is good story, well told, well, we can talk about the rest later. (laughs) We can talk about whether it appeals to me or not, because that's a different argument. But the the idea of... um, borrowing or or copying some of the be- some of the best things that have ever been created in the, in the world of film is are people honestly going I want to make my own version of X. Right. And the thing is they you can never really make your own version of it. I mean you can never make the you can never completely remake or retool something from the past something it's perfectly to be a a a carbon copy of it but what you do is you want to take those things and craft your own your own uh, style around it, your own ideas. You want to fold other things in. You want to emphasize certain things and de-emphasize other things. And that is the that's that's the joy to me. That's why I, um, although I understand, I lived I lived through the the great and hideous backlash that may still exist in certain circles against remakes. I hate remakes. Goddamn remakes. And um, there is that part of me that is always during the heyday of when, you know, people raving online about remakes and horror remakes being the worst thing that has ever existed on the planet Earth. There's that little thing in the back of my head that keeps going, you know, some of my favorite horror movies ever made are remakes. Let me point you toward the thing, the fly. Yeah. The blob. <laughs> it's just this, this, this thing where you're just like. They're not all bad, and if you're going to start painting them all as bad, if you're going to say that simply because someone is, you know, redoing or, or you know, consciously and obviously trying to piggyback onto the back of a previous success, then you're going to miss out on some good stuff. <laughs> you're going you're to kind of cheat yourself in to a certain to a certain degree, and it's Correct, been nice yeah. with, with De Palma. Uh, it's been nice to see him, uh, you know, as of several years ago, kind of return to the thriller, uh, the maybe even call it returning to the giallo thing with some really new ideas, with some really fresh takes. I don't know about you, but I absolutely, I don't know if you've seen it even, but I absolutely loved Femme Fatale. Yeah, I did too. I did see that. I saw that in just a really random story, but I used to work... Uh, in the entertainment industry when I lived in LA, like on the business side. And um, we used to be able to go to screening sometimes as one of our perks for the job that I had. And on Thanksgiving day, um, the DGA was screening, the director's guild was screening Femme Fatale. And so I brought my friend and we were the only two people in the theater aside from William Lustig who made Maniac. And I've, I've met William Lustig a couple times. I don't think he remembers me, but I have met him and he's really nice. But um, he walked out. I think um, I don't remember him being there when the movie let out. My friend hated it. She hated it so much that we went to a Thanksgiving dinner with uh, some friends of mine, my friends, not her. So it was really embarrassing. And she told everybody how the movie ended because it would be a waste of time for them to go. 
And oh, God. I couldn't believe it. And I think they were really upset because they really wanted to see it. And um, I, it was rude. And um, and I couldn't. But I thought it was. I don't think I thought it was the best movie I ever seen. But I did really like it. I remember. I just I think it's incredibly ballsy. And the uh, the joy of seeing it, uh, even the first time, because I got to see it in the theater, the, the first time I ever saw it was was realizing at a certain point that there are these reoccurring images like the clock the clocks that are that are stopped at a particular time every mm-hmm. time he shows a clock it's at the same time and the reoccurring uh, water imagery and it's like That's at right. about halfway th- at about halfway through the movie you realize this is something i need to pay attention to and uh, it was really nice to see him you know return to the to the genre uh, and, and really bring something fresh and interesting fr- from the perspective of what he had done in the past. But uh, this is not the Brian De Palma podcast, and I apologize yeah. to the listeners for us going down <laughs> That would the be a great road. podcast. That must exist somewhere, and I need to find it. You know, it should exist. If it doesn't, uh, it's another one of those podcasts that I, I fear that I would wish that I had the time had the time to make. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, anyway, back to our back. back see, see, this is the, these are the side roads. This is the, this is what I'm talking about. Good. I have no problem with this. Okay, so now Carrie has been killed, and we know it's definitely by someone using scissors. Although I think the the cops the cops do point that out, but uh, we're, we we know in real time. Now now that he's satisfied that uh, something is going on, Donald Pleasance's cop character opens a case uh, and contacts Bob, and together they try to figure out who's responsible for Carrie's murder, and uh, the possibly connected to the disappearance of Jessica at the same time. Bob then receives a letter from his sister indicating that she has run off. This is the uh, telegram that he gets, actually. Uh, Settling on the fact that his sister simply ran away, Bob then decides to head back to Wyoming. However, before he can do that, Bob again feels a strong premonition and travels to an old apartment building. Now, it is at this point I should warn everyone involved, if you have not seen this movie, and I know that it's not the easiest movie to see, and for that I apologize, but we were about to enter into what Rod would refer to as fucking spoiler fucking territory. Because <laughs> we're, the, the, before we, a couple of days ago, Amanda and I were uh, messaging back and forth, and, and we, we decided there's absolutely no way we're going to do a podcast on this film and not talk about the ending. So be aware for those of you that this would uh, spook away from actually ever seeing the movie, that we are about to start discussing the end of the movie, and um, in some uh, in some probable detail. And um, if that's something that will put you off from seeing the movie, allow me to push you away from the podcast. Pause it, turn it off, delete it, whatever. You can download it again later on after you've seen the movie. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Just be aware we're going to spoil this mofo right now. Okay. <laughs> now, Amanda. The ending of this movie, I did not see coming. I did not, I didn't figure out who the killer was, and maybe it's because I'm just fucking stupid, or maybe it's because I was actually just enjoying myself pretty well. I don't know. But did you? Did, I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of red herrings in the movie. Let's not let's not forget that we have that um, the uh, photographer. Who she's uh, who Jessica is with the night you know at that at that club the night she uh, disappears, um, and then there's the uh, scumbag you know rich guy who has the party where uh, the Russian roulette sequence happens. So he's he's a he's a red herring. Although he seems to get ruled out pretty hard by the cops about midway through the film. 
Yeah. And then there are all these other people who are cutting eyes at each other, and there's this intimation that there, you know, that it could be maybe another model, maybe a rival, something like that. Although the movie kind of undermines that by there not being a lot of cattiness on display in the film between the models, right. which is a, a little weird. You'd have thought there might might have been a little bit of that, so that some of these uh, some of these. Uh, under the surface tensions might have been something that could have been pulled up and dragged out into the on the screen as a as a motivating factor when you get to the end, but that's not the way the film goes. But did you did you have do you remember if you had a clue what the hell was going on when the when the killer is revealed? Well, I mean, just to give you a brief history of my relationship with this movie. I caught it on cable, oh uh, god, in like nineteen ninety one or ninety two. And um, I remember the video cover. It's kind of iconic with Renee Simonson, uh, just in her underwear, turning to the side, holding a piece of cloth over the front of her body. And um, and I was like, oh, okay, this is that movie that I've never seen. And so I kind of caught it halfway in. And I don't know if I remember knowing who the killer was, but then I rented it at some point. And no, I don't. I don't. A lot of times when I watch these movies, I don't actually even think about who the killer could be. It, I kind of let the film just kind of take me. Yeah. And wherever it ends up is wherever it ends up. But this time watching it, there is one very telling scene that I picked up on. And if I'd been maybe a more attentive viewer in the early days, maybe I would have guessed it. But um, no, I don't think I had any idea. And But later, it's interesting because my husband has watched this movie several times and he never remembers who the killer is. <laughs> and then, and I don't know why, because he likes the movie. And then part way into it, he's like, oh, I remember. And so um, I think that now it's hard for me not to pick up on things. But yeah, I don't think it, I think the first time I saw it, I had no clue. And I think I was, I was not just surprised by who the killer was, but I was surprised by the relationship. And we'll talk about that. Well, I have to say that I am one of those people who sometimes if a movie is really beating you over the head with clues that are too obvious to miss, I will figure out who the killer is, or at least have a good idea of who the killer is. But most of the time, I much prefer to just let the story wash over me and not try to engage the analytical side of my brain. I try. I kind of want to let the film have its chance to surprise me, you know? And right. I, because right. That's, that, that's what the movie's aiming to do. And sometimes I feel if the movie doesn't manage that, then that may be, that's, that's maybe a knock against it. The other problem I run into is like, okay, so the first, the first time I saw this movie, I think was a couple years ago. Uh, I uh, obtained a copy surreptitiously. We will not. Uh, we will not talk about how I got a copy of the film. And uh, the the uh, I sat down, and watched it. All I knew was that it was uh, you know a mid eighties giallo, and I checked it out, and I really enjoyed it. So when uh, you and I decided to talk about this movie, I said, "Oh, good. Okay. Well, I'll, I remember enjoying that. I'll sit down and watch it again." So the movie starts, and I realized I didn't remember who the killer was. I did not remember the final act at all and uh part, part of that's a part of that's a joy uh it does not make me fear you know uh, oncoming alzheimer's or, or or anything of that nature. <laughs> it, it's something that is a re, that is a reoccurring uh thing that my brain does which is I, it's almost as if it saves me from from ruining a movie that i'm enjoying watching a second time i don't know uh or or um Maybe it's just that for most of these movies, it's really the the ride that is the most important aspect that you know that kind of sticks in your memory instead of the uh, yeah. instead of you know when the when the when the uh, roller coaster car comes to a stop and you have to exit. <laughs> 
the I almost never remember, and I definitely didn't remember this time. So when the killer is revealed, I'll admit I was like, oh, holy shit. Yes. Why do you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it, got it, got it. The shocking aspect of this is that there is a relationship that is revealed that we had no clue about, that we had absolutely no idea about. And it's um, it's intriguing. So let's 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 kind of go ahead and and once again motion toward people. Hey, yeah, we're about to start talking about the ending. So here it goes. Um, so Bob travels to this old apartment building that is um, near a very shall we say memorable piece of uh, public statuary, which is like this bizarre coin sculpture yeah. that, sculpture that's like you know about 15 feet high that rotates so it's a, it's in a it, i wonder if people who live in milan are just are, are always surprised to see places that they see every day in their real, real life on screen as much as i am when it when it happens to me but the um it's a very identifiable place uh he tries to get into this this apartment in this building that he's he's his premonition seems to have drawn him toward uh, it's locked. Nobody answers. He can't get in, uh, and he finds a way to climb uh, up the. Uh, it's a pretty dangerous thing. He climbs up the uh, wiring that I'm assuming is the wiring for like the phones and everything, and gets to an open window inside the apartment and climbs inside. He injures himself as on his way inside, which uh, is pretty 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 clever of the filmmakers once again, so that you have someone who is trying to fend off someone who would be much less of a physical presence than our main character, but because he has been injured in his, in his primary arm and his right arm, he's, he's not working at full strength. So once again, smart script writing, good idea. So he gets inside the apartment and starts looking around and, uh, that's when he discovers, well, somebody, somebody starts knocking at the door and he realizes he needs to, so he hides in a closet, uh, and hiding in a closet is a great phrase to use for what's about to be revealed. Um, uh, Bob discovers that his sister's killer is Barbara, the beautiful model that he met earlier and that al- he almost went to bed with. She comes in and she's clearly crazy. She's um, talking to herself and, uh, well, not really talking to herself so much as talking to Jessica's dead body which has been uh, mm-hmm. restrained and even nailed to a chair in the apartment there. And uh, it turns out that um, Barbara and Jessica were in a romantic relationship with each other. Um, and we have we even have a little flashback, a little sexy flashback there where we get an, another body double, I'm sure, because, once again, that particular actress was apparently not going to show her body. Turns out that uh, when uh, Jessica announced to her lover Barbara that she was going to uh, go back home or was going to leave or was just not going to be involved with Barbara anymore, Barbara did not take it very well and uh, killed her. And so that is when this whole thing started. So we are in a very spacious apartment that uh, is... uh, I, I love how all the little threads come together here because you talked about the diamonds that have been involved in this all along, which is the diamonds were a payoff from the, the scumbag character for the various models at this party to keep their mouths shut about the act, about the model who, uh, while playing Russian roulette, actually blew her brains out. And so Barbara is aware that these different women have been paid off with about $100,000 in diamonds each. And so has decided to not just claim her dead girlfriend's diamonds, but to claim the other women's diamonds as well, 
so that she can live very well in this very spacious apartment in the middle of Milan, Italy, which I'm assuming has to be very costly. Yeah, probably. So I, I love that we have that thread, that teased out thread of the diamonds. And there be, in other words, there being a secondary motivation for the murders after the death of Barbara. Uh, because this person was very evidently, the movie shows us, collecting those diamonds. Each murder was uh, to get their hands on those diamonds. Because none of these people that are killed after Barbara's killed had the slightest clue about what was going on. And if this woman had just killed Barbara and somehow gotten rid of the body and, you know, used those diamonds herself, no, no one would have ever found out anything. But she's crazy, so it doesn't work out. What do you think, what do you think about the reveal of the lesbian relationship? Um, I love the end of this movie. For me, it makes the whole thing worthwhile because it's it's both uh, complicated and it's also really beautiful and sad. It's a lot of tragedy. And so my impression of what happened is less so about the diamonds than it is about losing her girlfriend, this woman that she loved, that they had to be secret about. Nobody knew that they knew each other. Not only did the filmmakers not reveal it, but they didn't reveal it because nobody knew because they had to be secret about it. And that's very telling of the time where people who were gay felt like they couldn't be open about their relationships, right? And so she had invested a lot of, Barb had invested a lot of herself in Jessica, um, loved her. And I don't know what Jessica's relationship exactly was with her, if it was exactly love back, but there was something there for Barbara. It reminds me a little bit of that movie, The Prey, not the not the USA Prey, the one from Norman J. Warren made. Do you know what I'm talking about? About oh, the yeah. two women that are gay and the alien comes and the one, the more aggressive of the two women is like really put her whole life into the relationship with this other girl. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think Barbara did the same thing. So it's complicated because it's saying, Hey, you know, gay people are crazy and psychotic, right? That that's a thing that wasn't uncommon in film, but it's also saying like, I had to repress and hide my love for you so deeply that when you left, I couldn't stand the idea of it. And I had to kill you to keep you. And there's something really tragic and beautiful about that. And that harkens back to a couple of movies um, that I'm thinking of that I'm just going to reference real quick before I go on. So they didn't, the guy who keeps the girl's body in graduation day didn't kill her, but he was so broken up about her death that he kept her body in his bedroom for like a year. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's sad. And it also has the exact same ending where somebody goes out the window and we can talk about that here in a second. <laughs> yes. Right. And the exact same ending. There's also house of psychotic women where we find out, I think that's the right movie. The Paul Nash movie. Is that right? Yes. Where the uh, doctor is keeping, is that the one with the eyes? Yes. And he's keeping his daughter right at, into the room, and um, and then kind of not the same premise or ending. But there's also Boyo Omega, where the guy's girlfriend dies, right, and he keeps her in the bedroom. And there's this, there's some tragedy to that, like where you can't let go. It's about not being able to let go and what that does to you. And so this film, when everything is revealed, I think. Renee Simonson's character, Barbara, is one of the more sympathetic killers I've seen in one of these types of films because I really feel for her. She's crazy, right? She shouldn't be doing the things she's doing. But she's making these people pay for n not the crime that they're hiding about this, but the, the, the fact that they're going to take her girlfriend away from her and she can't stand the idea of it. And because that they've set all this in motion, she is going to get revenge on them for the fact she feels like she had to kill her girlfriend to keep her and she had to kill her girlfriend because these people were all involved in this crime. And so like 
the emotional resonance of this film is so deep for me. It's like prom night. It's like there's nothing more sympathetic than the killer in prom night for me. Every time I watch that movie, it's just so tragic when you get to that last scene. And so, and it sticks with you and it makes me sad. It makes me feel things. And I, I have a similar reaction to the end of this movie. So I think it's wonderful. I, I like Renee Simonson a lot. I don't know. I think she's really good in the movie. I don't know if she's so good playing a crazy person as she's just being the girl next door type. But um, so when it gets to the end, I feel like maybe, it's not the best performance, which is saying something because I think all of the women in this movie were probably real models, and I think they're all very good. Um, and I do think Renee Simonson's good. I just don't know if she's as good at being crazy. But that scene at the end is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing, and it's so worthwhile. It's just worth the film. For, and then the movie ends, and you're like, oh, my God, what just happened? And so so there's, there's two revealing things about it. So if you're watching, when they take Carrie's body out of the Hotel Scala, the black girl is very upset visibly upset about this death yeah. and you see renee simonson looking at her a certain way and i think it's kind of telling that she knows something more than what she's revealing at that point point. and the other scene that's really revealing is when she kisses um bob but then won't go any further with him and then she says later to Je jessica's corpse you know i kissed your brother and it reminded me of kissing you yeah and and that's really poignant to me, you know, because I feel like that scene where Bob comes to her hotel room and he, and he goes to kiss her and she's very into it at the beginning. It's her last connection to her, to, to um, Jessica. And, and so it makes looking back on that scene kind of poignant. And so um, I think that there's all these little things that are peppered throughout the movie. It's almost like, I don't want to say it's Barton Fink because Barton Fink's a totally different film. But you know when you watch Barton Fink the first time, you don't really know where it's going. And then when you watch it the second time, there's all these clues that have been laid about, like, I'm, I sell peace of mind, right? Yeah. John Goodman says. And then it all makes sense. And so, like, I feel like this movie is laying out all these different things. It's almost like you have to watch the movie twice to fully appreciate it, which is great. And um, and so, yeah, I love the ending. I think it's I think that was your question. Um, I think it's it's really moving. And I don't know if you want to talk about the exact final camera shots. Oh, yes, I do. Um, but, like... Um, I don't know if you want to introduce it, uh, well, but like, uh, well, let's put it this way. For, but before we before we get to that, Bob has has, has tried to call uh, the Donald Pleasance cop character from the apartment, uh, trying to tell them that he's found, you know, trying to tell them what he's found. But because of the way he got here, he doesn't know the address, so he only gives them a clue. So the movie very smartly doesn't know. You don't know whether how whether the cops are going to be able to locate. His, his this apartment before all this shit starts to go down, and so there's some great tension built there as to whether the whether anybody's going to be coming to the rescue or not. So that's really well played out, and I like the way they did that. Also, uh, we have once uh, Barbara uh, spots Bob and attacks him. Uh, one of the, one of the things that she does is she grabs a freaking power drill and comes after him, which is another oh, yeah. nod to body double. That's and right. I, I love it because this is a gender reversal on that, as it's as it's a woman wielding a power tool against a guy. And l luckily, they they have they have enough clue because of that sculpture that he mentions the the, the giant coin thing. <laughs> it's revolving on a pedestal that uh, they're able to find the place. And, of course, the cops do show up and break into the apartment and save uh, Bob from being drilled to death, which is an odd statement. I don't know why, why I made that. Anyway, uh, in a fit of madness, though, and, of course, this whole, whole entire sequence is a fit of madness, Barbara then grabs Jessica's corpse and jumps out of the window to her death. Uh, roll credits. 
which yeah. um, I, I always go back to one of my favorite jokes about Hammer movies, which is, you know, monster dead movie over. The monster can have just been shot and blood still be gushing out of the open wound and Hammer will start rolling the credits over his death throes. Uh, that feels a little bit like this ending here, too, where it's just like there's this open mouth gaping, holy shit, what did I just see thing? And then the credits start to roll and you realize, oh, well, that's it then, huh? <laughs> we're not, we're not going yeah. to get any like, final shot that shows us well, anything weirder or stranger, but... Well, but like, like we've been following Bob through this whole movie, and we don't even really get to see Bob's reaction to yeah what's happened to his sister's body, right? And so it's like it kind of leaves you hanging, even though it's clearly ended. I mean, there's nowhere you can go from here. You're there's like this afterthought about oh, oh my god, poor Bob! Like, <laughs> what a thing to see, right? <laughs> He's already stumbled in on his dead sister, right? Which is horrifying enough as it is, and then and then to see her go out the window with this woman that he almost slept with, that he had feelings for, you know what I mean? And also in in kind of ingesting all the information that his sister was either bisexual or gay and had had a pretty torrid love affair with this woman, mm-hmm. is like that's a lot of stuff to happen in like a four or five minute you know, sequence. And so it's like, it's like you kind of want there to be, I don't know if I necessarily want to see Donald Pleasance taking him to the airport, but there's, there is a, it leaves you hanging and it sort of keeps the tension there after the movie ends. And I kind of like that choice. It doesn't try to wrap it up neatly. I mean, the film itself, the mystery has been wrapped up, but the film, the characters haven't been. And, um, and I like that. I think that's kind of a bold choice because it leaves you just with this last kind of horrific, tragic, tragic, tragic image of this young woman and who's so repressed emotionally that she had to do this to herself, right? That's how I see the movie when I watch it. It's just so tragic to me. And so in a way, I'm really glad he made that director choice. But at the same time, you're like, can we figure find out if Bob's okay? What's going on with Bob, you know? <laughs> well, I agree with what you said earlier about uh, Renee Simonson's uh, performance in this sequence. I think that when she's um, earlier in the scene, when she's uh, walking around the apartment, doing things, talking to her dead, her dead girlfriend, that, that, uh, that's a good performance from her. I think that's interesting because it's, it's showing you that she's crazy without being uh, over the top and without being uh, comic or strange in a way that uh, looks that looks off it feels naturalistic but once she goes into attack mode there's a little less yeah she's 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 able to sell it a little less effectively and uh, it's not a shock i mean she was a she was a model of course but and it's not a shock to know that this is you know one of only two movies that she starred in i i don't know that it's something that she would have had a great affinity for and i don't know you no. know she, I, I, she, don't, I think from that scene we can see that she didn't have a whole lot of range yeah, she um, apparently, if I remember correctly, and I didn't look her up before this podcast, but I was obsessed with her because she used to date John Taylor from Duran Duran. They lived together for years, and I thought they were like oh. the most beautiful couple I'd ever seen, and I've always loved her. I've always loved her. and But I think she quit modeling, and if I'm if memory serves, she moved to the Alps, which is amazing, and I think she has a couple kids, and she's married, and she got a doctorate in like theology. And uh, I think in, no, she got a she got a she finished her degree in psychology in 2002, and then uh, started publishing children's books. Oh wow! Yeah, I remember reading something about her in a modeling. There's a magazine that used to be I can't remember what it was called, but it was a modeling magazine for models. And we used to carry it at the bookstore I worked at. And I used to love to read it because it was like how to find an agent and all this stuff. But they had women sending composite shots of themselves, and uh, and like half the women 
didn't really look like models. It was kind of a fascinating sort of look at girls who wanted to model, but weren't probably going to get a career. And they would interview famous models in the magazine. And they interviewed Renee Simonson. And that's when I had read that she had quit kind of the modeling world and stuff. And um, she's a really impressive person, I think. But yeah, I don't know that acting was like a great love for her. No, no. But I mean, you can see why someone would want her on screen because she is beautiful. And of uh, course, she photographs wonderfully. She's oh, ridiculous. And that's the when I talk about actresses versus models. Like, like there are plenty of stunning actresses, obviously, but models are a particular breed, especially top models. And like Renee Simonson's really beautiful, but she also is like doesn't look like anybody else I've ever seen. Like her eyes are so strange and amazing and stunning and unique. And she's got these really like like slightly exaggerated features but not in a cartoony way there's just yeah. something about her that's like it, so models are stunning in a completely different way and then than actresses although of course some of them become actresses but like so all the women in this film are very unique in their beauty and they look way more like models to me than they do actors so it was really well cast but yeah she's just stop the traffic she's walking down the street we none of us can react properly when we see her she's so beautiful and at the end it's great because she's wearing that little sweatsuit and she takes off the top part of it and she's wearing like a, a leotard and then these like oversized sweatpants and like these little sneakers and she's just the cutest thing i've ever seen and you're like she really just killed like how many people you know what i mean in her little oversized sweats and it's just like she's just so amazing to me i just love her well that okay so the, the, the ending with them going out the window is completely mad, but I, I, to, to, to talk about something, you just reminded me of something else. I, I know that you uh, you have a, a, a little fascination for some of the weirdness of 80s fashion. What did you think of the... Th- this film did not strike me as overly uh, exaggerated, except for a couple of particular articles of clothing in its in its fashion choices what did you think of that i think that's another thing about fashion that's as it's portrayed in film um and tv usually they never get it right like when you watch a fashion show like if you ever watch models inc the stuff they wear is hideous and you're like no that's not a real fashion show here i think it's really really elegant i do think some of it's over the top i feel like one of the dresses was like one side was like a real big frilly shoulder type sleeve (laughs) and the other side might have been the bare shoulder which was a popular thing that i never understood and it was hideous but in the fashion show that they're at the machino show the when the black girl is doing the um and i wish i knew the actress name it sounds so degrading when i just say black girl but like she's so beautiful but like when she's wearing that black floor-length turtleneck dress with that yeah. big oversized necklace, it's stunning. And that is high fashion. They got it right. Like that show is perfect. And so I think that the fashion in this is really amazing. I like a lot of it. Well, I, the, the only moment in the movie where I saw something where I thought, my God, this is the 80s, was um, the scene where uh, the, the character who uh, is the, the first uh, – well, she's really the second victim, but she's the second, uh, the first victim, Carrie. She's yeah. wearing this like bright orange or red coat. Yeah. That she ends up actually leaving behind in, at a certain point before she's killed. And there's a part of me that's going, yeah, why did you have that in the first fucking place? I would have left that thing behind as well. Because it's just, it's like this, it's like she's wearing a fucking traffic cone. I don't understand. Yeah, it's, it's not attractive. Yeah. It's funny, though, because when they do the fashion shoot right before that scene, with the uh, photographer that Bob talks to, they're they're doing. It's a really cool. It's in the theater, like a like an old opera house or something. It's just beautiful. And and then he's like, "All right, we're done." And they just walk out in the clothes that they were modeling in. And I'm like, "On what planet is Armani letting you walk out with your his five thousand dollars?" You know what I mean? It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And then she goes to I think that guy's house in the dress, and it's like, 
okay. But, and there's no lighting person. There's nothing, no makeup artist. It's just the photographer and the models. And it, although it looks semi-authentic in the way he has them posed in this composition of everything, you know, like I just love that they just walk out and like they're $20,000, whatever. And, and then they're out that night and it's really funny. But yeah, I think, I think, like I said, this movie is very authentic to the era and it feels really realistic. Um, and so, so there wasn't a lot that stood out to me that I thought was like, unattractive i know renee simonson wears this really great like t-shirt dress i guess and it's got a hole in the middle do you know what i'm talking about yeah that kind of exposes her midriff it's so cute it's just like it's and her gym wear is cute like i think everything in the movie looks really good uh, one other question that uh is something that's so, i'm surprised i haven't uh, brought this up before i absolutely love donald pleasant's He's wonderful. And this is that period of time when he was, I mean, he made Phenomena, uh, you know, the, the year. Paganini horror. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these, a lot of movies in, in, uh, in uh, a lot of these uh, European thrillers of different types and different horror films and things of this, this nature. Um, But my question becomes, um, it's weird enough that this movie, every character in Italy speaks English. All of them. That's right. Uh, that's right. The whole, yeah. mo- the whole movie shot in English. If if you were watching this in Italy, I guarantee you this was dubbed in Italian. My question becomes that that Italian accent that Donald Pleasance is affecting. Yeah. There are moments when because it kind of it, it kind of drifts in and out a little bit, and there are moments when I I wonder if it might not have been a better idea for Donald Pleasance to have dropped that completely. But uh, the the oddity of it uh because in general we all we all know what donald pleasant sounds like and of course in halloween he's he tamps down on his british accent so he he sound, he doesn't sound british but there's a a certain clipped nature to the way in which he speaks that you know that stands him you know that gives him a little bit of a distance audibly from the rest of the cast and of course that's the way that character should be within that the structure of that story but in this it's like uh some of his time on screen, especially when they're discussing food in that weird Wendy's, uh, it, it is the thing where you're just like, I love Donald Pleasance and he's great and he's pulling all this off. It's just, I wonder about the accent. Yeah, well, I mean, at least it's him because they're, they're using the real voices of the actors in here. Renee Simonson, I mean, English wasn't her first language, although she speaks it quite well. Um, but like, I kind of like the mix of everybody. I was watching something recently. I can't even remember what it was. Oh, was it Gates of Hell? And um, that Fulci movie, and it's interesting because you start to pick out uh, the dub, the dubbed actors' voices, and you know that they do different movies. And there was an, it's somebody doing a very small part in Gates of Hell, and I was like, "Oh, that's the guy that does all the David Warbeck voiceovers in the movies where they do it in a different language or something." And then for some reason, they don't get David Warbeck to do his own voice, like Miami Horror. It's the same actor who does the voice of David Warbeck in Miami Horror. And there's one other movie he does David Warbeck's voice, maybe Formula for murder i'm not sure and so it's like it's like ridiculous but here i i i like <laughs> that it's them doing it themselves as far oh, as i can yeah, tell because yeah. because the sleaze bad guy he can barely speak english you know and yet they have him doing all the doing lines it, yeah. and, and also the uh, porky pig guy says some things that i'm not sure i quite understood and um but i like that they have him doing it i I like i like the effort of keeping the actors with their voices and i don't mind donald pleasance i see a lot of people do get stuck on that and i see it but i don't know there's something about it i like it's charming i I don't mind it i don't mind it at all i mean you're right part of it is that 
Donald Pleasance is being cast because he's Donald Pleasance, and therefore, to a certain degree, the, the people putting him in the movie know that it's going to be much smarter to keep his voice because the audience knows what he sounds like. Yeah. So, and anytime you, you start dubbing someone who's got a recognizable voice, you're, you're, you're kind of pushing an audience away. Did you ever see Fatal Frames? Oh, God, years ago. Yeah, a long okay. time ago. Because, you know, I can't even remember if he does his own voice or not. But, you know, he died while they were filming it. So they had to tie up his character. Mm-hmm. And they and they put him in a phone booth. And it's just like the back of some guy's head who looks like Donald Pleasance. And then they get a guy who doesn't really sound like Donald Pleasance. And he's like, I have to go back to Haddonfield. A crime yes. has opened. Do you remember that? A crime has opened it's up. It's absolutely the lamest exit from a film in the history of <laughs> movies. I, th- I think. I think. I swear to you. I think that may be the lamest exit ever. Yeah, it might be. But I mean, it, it only makes that movie better for it because it's such a whatever. I don't know what that movie is, but it's the best thing I've ever seen. I follow the lead actress on Facebook and I adore her to no end. I just am in love with the people who made that movie. But anyway, so but they dub his voice and then you're and it's really sad because, you know, he died while making it. And so um, and you're like, that's a bummer. But like so. So here. Yeah, you're right. He, he's. I think it helps the performance too, because I think I don't mind dubbing in a lot of those movies, but when you can't get the original actor who has an American accent to dub his own voice, it's kind of disappointing and can be distracting. So I think they did a fine job by just letting him uh, feel out how he thinks the commissioner would have sounded and just let him go with it because the heart of the performance is still there, you know? Well, I have to say that clearly we wouldn't be talking about this movie if we didn't really enjoy it. And the thing is I, I can say without, fear or favor that this is a really well done movie. This is a solid piece of cinema. And um, I think that I'm a little surprised now having seen it several times over the past couple of years, I'm a little surprised it's not better known, but at the same time, I don't, I don't know that it's ever gotten a, a, a decent video release over here. Like you said, you caught it on cable. So people who may have seen it in the past, uh, they, they have memories of it and they may like it, but there's never been an opportunity for them to remember it, it to a degree. You know how that's the, thing yeah. about a vi- that's the thing about a video release for genre fans is that a video release brings something back to the top of your mind and it reminds you of something that you enjoyed in the past and therefore makes you start thinking about it um, and, the, and the qualities that the film has. I, I, th- I think, sadly, this is one of those movies that if if someone out there, you know, put out a decent, if, if, for instance, let's just, you know, let's play devil's advocate. Let's say Scream Factory put out a new special edition release of this. This movie would be incredibly well thought of. This is not a movie that people would be saying, oh, yeah, it's a it's a trash classic or it's, you know, it's not particularly good, but but I enjoy it. No, no, no. I think this is a really good thriller. This is a good giallo, whatever you want to, you know, whatever, you know, uh, genre affiliation you want to label onto it. It's really effectively done. And I wish that it were better known. I think more people have heard the title than have seen the movie. Yeah, it did, it did have a VHS release. I have the original VHS, but but it's no, never had a DVD release in this country as far as I know. And that's a, that's a tragedy because the VHS obviously doesn't have the same uh, visual quality to it because it's just, that's just how VHS was. And so I have another copy, which I probably got from the same source you did, which is, has the Italian credits, but it's all English and yeah. it's, it's beautiful to look at. It's like, it's, it's like night and day when you watch it on VHS. So, so even though I liked it on VHS and back in the day, you get a better appreciation for the Carlo Benzina's direction and, um, and just the beauty of the cinematography. If you can get 
the what I guess the Italian American I don't know what you where that came out that has the Italian credits at the beginning but um, yeah I feel like it's just a lost film and that makes me really sad because it's so for me it's a very um, personal film because I relate to a lot of horror movies that deal with grief and loss because I like the way they do it they mm-hmm. do it better than movies that are dealing with grief and loss overtly I like things in metaphor because I think you can inscribe your own um, experiences and emotions into those films and and so for me this movie in a lot of ways captures um, sadness in a way that a lot of other films don't in tragedy and so I think it's really saying something on top of the fact that I agree with you it's a completely solid thriller like it doesn't have a lot of loopholes in the plot it's not like goofy or outrageous in a lot of ways it's a real good and it's not boring. It's not like I'm, you know, and people are like, well, it's not outrageous, but I like the over the top. But it's still a really good movie because it has characters that you actually care about. It has um, really good acting. It's really beautifully shot. It's got some really great suspense. It's got a good score by Pino Donaggio. And it's also got this emotional resonance that I keep coming back to that I think makes the whole movie worthwhile. And I'm shocked that it doesn't have a better release. And it has had two sequels. I don't know if you were familiar with um, Too Beautiful to Die or the third one, which I wrote down the title of, it's never gotten a release here. And it's, it's called Nothing Under the Dress, The Last Fashion Show, or also known as The Last Fashion Show. And it starred Richard E. Grant, of all people. And oh, Yeah, I actually saw a, uh, I saw a, tra- I found a trailer yeah. for that. Yeah, I Check it out. I thought the, it looks uh, great. The, 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 the one that you're referring to is like the, the, the second one, the one that was, uh, you know, number two or whatever. That was done by yeah. other people, wasn't it? But the but the third one, yes. the, the one with Richard E. Grant, was actually done by the same director. Correct. And it bombed, I read. And so that's why I think it never got a wider release. Yeah, Too Beautiful to Die is like an in-name-only sequel. And somebody gave me a copy of it years ago. And I haven't seen it since then, but I have it on a, like a bootleg DVD. It's so good, though. It's, it's outrageous. If you're looking for those outrageous... <laughs> kind of Italian horror slash giallo type movies where everything's really like over the top and extra exotic and extra uh, violent and stuff. I think Too Beautiful to Die based on my memory will fit your bill, but I think you're selling yourself short if you don't try nothing underneath first. Um, Yeah, yeah, because it's just amazing. Um, The third one I would love to see and hopefully at one point, because you know, so this is totally random, but they, um, I think Austria or Germany made a tv movie biopic about falco and it translates the title translates into we're all here we're still here damn it and um and i and for years it wasn't available to american audiences now somebody subtitled it and it's on amazon to rent and i haven't seen it yet but i somebody told me hey you know it's on amazon now amanda and i died and so my hope is that this movie will just show up like that. Like somebody will take the time to subtitle it and like sell it to overseas markets and it'll just pop up on a streaming site. And one day I'll just be looking around and and I'll be like, Oh my God, the last fashion show is on Amazon. You know, that's what I hope that one day I'll finally get to see it. Yeah. That's the thing is I, I know of no English option for that thing yet. And it's, uh, it's like, uh, and how much call is there for it? I hate to say it because it's like a, it's like a 2011 film, 2011. And I hate to say it. It's like, even out in the fan subbing community, uh, it's the older stuff that gets more attention for, for fan subbers because that's stuff that, you know, 
people have really been curious about for a very long time when there's no English option and it's it's really frustrating well, for people. I'll tell you, I will sit through the I should I should just do it. I will sit through the Italian version because you know when Scarlet Diva came out, the Ozzy Argento movie, there was no way for me to access it in an in an English track because it first came out in Italian and there was no American market at that point. So I bought a bootleg of it in Italian and I watched it. And I loved it. And then it, I was living in L.A. at the time. And then it actually got a very small theatrical release. And I was able to see it in the theater in English. And it was like night and day because my interpretation of Scarlet Diva based off the Italian without hearing the dialogue was so different. Both films are great. <laughs> but, like, the Italian one was, like, it was a little more tragic. Um, and um, um, it was they, both experiences were amazing. But I did sit through the entire thing in Italian. And I think I watched... Most of Mario Bava shock in Italian too because I can't stand the dubbing for that little kid. So oh, yeah. I was like, I was like, I'm just gonna watch the Italian version, even though it wasn't subtitled on the release I bought, and um, it was much better. Even though I probably misinterpreted half the film, but like, so maybe I should just bite <laughs> the bullet and if I can find it in Italian, just watch it. Uh, you're you're a braver soul than I. I tr- I've tried to do that with a few films that I just I'm like determined. Damn it, I want to see what this I want to see this movie and I don't care what language is in. And the thing is, is at, at, invariably at a certain point watching it, I just realize I cannot get engaged because I can't connect with what the fuck is happening. It's driving me crazy. I so I just I can't manage it. It drives me. It drives me right away from it. I'm in. I'm in it to win it. I'm thinking now. I'm gonna probably check it out now. I didn't even think about that. It's been so long since I've watched a movie in Italian, but I have done it. So, I mean, it's fine. I can do it. Well, Amanda, before uh, before I let you go or before I say sayonara, I just wanted to once again thank you for uh, for being here and also thank you for the, the amazing book you edited, uh, Are You in the House Alone? Thank you. Uh, your, your TV movie compendium. I have to admit, I have less interest once you get into the 1990s than I do in the stuff uh, from the, the 60s and the 70s. But uh, this 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 book you you you're listed as the editor, but I know you wrote a fair number of the uh, the uh, reviews in it of specific films, and I'm assuming that uh, the the most obvious thing in the world would be that uh, the ones that you wrote the reviews for, the ones you were most enthusiastic about, the horror stuff is where you tend to concentrate. Although it does seem that you were nice enough to hand off. Some very obvious ones like Salem's Lot to to uh, Lee Gambin and other folks like that, but. Um, are you in the house alone? That is, it's a, first of all, it's a great book. Let me just let me compliment you on the book. Let me compliment oh, you on you. the idea. Let me compliment you on whatever hell you went through to shepherd the enti- shepherd the entire project uh, through to the pro- through the 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 hell that it must have been to make it onto uh, uh, people's bookshelves. But um, how long had this idea been gestating? How long had the idea for doing a book like this been gestating before you were able to actually get the ball rolling? Well, let me say that this the ball was already rolling when I came on. So uh, Head Press wanted to, yeah, Head Press, I have to give credit to everybody involved in the book because, especially David Carakees at Head Press, because he had this idea that he wanted to do a book on TV movies. And he got a bunch of people together. Some were pretty into TV movies. Others were just like into movies and they wanted to be part of the book. And um, a couple people said you should talk to this girl she has a blog at the time i only had a blog and um she writes all about tv movies and she's got a lot of background in it so he contacted me and we started talking and he started asking me questions about tv movies that he wasn't being in england they're an english publisher head press um they didn't have that much 
knowledge about like how TV movies were running and what they meant and the context and blah, blah, blah. So we started talking a lot about them. I was working on the book for a while. I wrote a couple essays for him and some reviews. And so a lot of the titles had already been taken. Now, the Stephen King chapter, I came up with myself and I did delegate all those out. But I did that because I don't, I'm not as knowledgeable in Stephen King adaptations as other people. And it wouldn't be right for me to take that chapter but I thought there needed to be a chapter because so much of his stuff has been adapted for TV so it was my pleasure to have people like Lee Gammon and Lance Vaughn from Kinder Trauma kind of lead the way for that but um, but so he, about a year in he said you know I don't I have a lot of stuff on my plate and I think it'd be really great if you took over the book because you seem to know the most about TV movies and have all these ideas and so he really kind of helped me and so when, when I edited the book and I get a lot of note for it I do want to say you know it, I, I got so much help um, doing it and I don't know that I could have done it by myself I'd always wanted to write a TV movie book but it really helped that there was a bunch of other really enthusiastic people helping me and that I had a publisher that walked me through the process of it so it took three years total to do it and before that for years I had always imagined if I could write a book about TV movies what would I want it to look like and he basically let me mold it into a general um, I that general idea of it so I'm really grateful for that so it was about a three-year process total with many writers helping out and um and it, I, the idea came from somewhere else, but I kind of think that it was just a meeting of the minds. I like to think of it that way, um, that the book was kind of needed. There have been other TV movie books, and there's some really good ones out there. Uh, but I think mine came at a time that was pure luck in a way. But um, in that now that the Internet is so big um, and there's so much available like on YouTube, and I hate to promote things on YouTube. I prefer to permit uh, – I prefer – to endorse, um, you know, legitimate streams, but you can't always do that because so much didn't get a legitimate release. Yeah. But like, but people who are cinephiles, um, like true cinephiles that watch everything and, and want to watch all this stuff, the last sort of frontier is the TV movie because a lot of those movies only aired once or twice and then completely disappeared. And so the, so people who are still into the hunt, the TV movie has become a really big thing for them. And so Warner Archive particularly kind of started the ball rolling with a lot of amazing releases they had like before 2010 like the Bermuda Depths and Bad Ronald and all these things coming out on their video on demand label and then my book came along when when Shout Factory and Kino Lorber and all these other great companies were starting to pick up the licensing for these movies and release them in legitimate formats and so all these people who and now have everything at their fingertips, but except TV movies, we're now getting access to these things that they never could before. And so I think it kind of all exploded in a way where my book just was timed sort of very beautifully by accident to happen with this sort of movement of the internet. And that's a long way to answer your question. So it took three <laughs> years, but I think, I think it, it, I'm glad it took so long to do because it came out right at the the right cultural moment for me and for people who were interested in um, discovering new films. Well, I was just really happy, not only with the book, but the fact that uh, doing something like this, doing a project like this, and probably the podcast played into it as well. When you turned up with a commentary track on Scream Factory's Blu-ray of The Spell, I was just so, I was so happy because it's like, oh, thank God. I mean, I know, in other words, as soon as I saw your name, I knew, okay, well, good. They, they've got someone who knows what the hell they're talking about. And I was just, I was just so thrilled. And, and but then immediately sad because they had, um, a couple of years before, they had put out a, a DVD of a double feature of uh, two classic 
um, 1970s TV movies. There are no extras on that at all. And it's like, God damn it, release those again and have her do commentaries on those two films. <laughs> I would love to. I was quoted on the back of that box. You're talking about Are in the House Alone and the Initiation of Sarah, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, the thing about Shout Factory is that I think the TV movies, and I think it's, I think it might be this way with all the companies that do it. It's more of a labor of love because I, I don't think that they sell a lot of copies of them. Like yeah. they sell enough to encourage them to do more TV movie releases, but, but not to the degree of like giallos or slashers. Like those, I think go like gangbusters. I think the TV movie still struggles, and so like when you're going to put extras on them, it costs money, and sometimes I think they just have the budget for the movie to get it remastered and that, that's probably the most important thing but yes i mean anybody who's releasing a tv movie i, I would i want them to ask me to do the commentary i can't obviously can't mm-hmm. do them all but like i love with them when they come to me and they're like hey you know like i just did pray for the wildcats with bill ackerman from supporting characters and it's like it's like when keanu lorber approached me with that title i just about died because that movie's so amazing and it's like all these things about Robert Reed that I've been gathering all these years, you know, about his TV movie career, I finally get to like talk about, you know, and so it's really exciting for me to do that. Uh, as as a as a as a fellow commentator, I've we, we've been able we've been lucky enough to be able to to do a few ourselves. I got a question for you, um, and I'm I'm not talking about the editing process of a commentary track, but when you when you have the Blu-ray in hand. Are you able to listen back to yourself on the disc over the movie? No, I don't ever watch my commentaries except for when I originally put them together. And even then I do like a really quick and dirty edit because you want to keep them in time with the film. So everybody does commentaries differently and I'm not, I don't know that I should be admitting this, but I'm not that technologically savvy. So I do them all in one sitting. And I kind of prefer that anyway, especially if I have a partner. Like I've, Bill and I did Last House and Left as well, and it's great to have that person there to like go back and forth with. That really helps. But I try to do it in one sitting. I have all my notes and, and sometimes a script, depending. And um, and then I go back and I edit it to make sure that everything is kind of timed correctly and, and it sounds okay and I've said everything I need to. And then I send it off. But when it comes back to me, it just goes on the yeah, shelf. I can't. I just I can't. can't I can't do it. And I don't also don't listen to my own podcasts and I don't watch my, when I was on Eli Ross history of horror, I never, I looked horrible on it for one, but <laughs> I never, I, I was so happy to be on it and I'm really excited. But when I look at myself, I want to die. And so like, I don't, I, I've never seen it. I went to the premiere of it and I spent the whole time with my head turned to the side. I played in the theater with Maniac at the uh, Beyond Fest in LA and I actually flew out to go to the premiere and then I watched the whole thing like with my head turned because I didn't <laughs> want to see myself on the big screen. You know oh what I mean? God. But I wanted to be there, you know, so because it was such a, that's never going to happen again. So like, no, anything that's like after the fact, I never go back and revisit it. It's just I, I'm so worried I'm going to like hear something I don't like or I'm, I'm going to realize I said something wrong yeah. or I don't like the way I sound or look. So it's just it's easier for me to just put it out into the world and let everybody else consume it and hopefully enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, the reason I ask is I, I find it completely impossible once once the, the Blu-ray is in my hand, I can't then turn the movie on and listen to my commentary. Tra- I can't listen to the commentary track that I'm on over the film i can't do it because all i can hear are all the ways that i think it could be improved or made better or the, yeah. how i could have phrased something better it's i just i just can't do it. i was i was curious i i um the the people that i know who do commentaries i i often ask this question of them and uh more more than a few of them feel the same way which is no i, I can't i can't listen to myself i can't do that. i can't do that yeah i think some people really enjoy it um 
And um, I think my friend Bill, that I do a lot of these commentaries with, I think he loves to go back because um, he works so, we both do, but he, I think he is so proud of what he does. And it makes me feel bad because I never listened to him. He's like, you know, if you ever listen to Last House, man, it's really good. And I was like, no, I can't do it. And then he'll tell me things that I said that I've forgotten I said. And I'm like, well, that sounded kind of not bad. And he's like, no, it's not bad. It's really good. You should listen to it. And so, but also I think like, I think Bill is a perfectionist more so than myself. And I think he likes to listen to them because also like he learns from them, like the things that are good and and that you know or if there's things he could have improved on which yeah. i doubt he's such a perfectionist but i think it helps him later with other commentaries which is why i think he gets um offered to do them a lot you know well that, that they may be right it's just that i i listen to myself during the editing podcast editing of podcasts and the uh, the editing of because we do commentary tracks in a, in a different way we we when troy and i do them we we piece them together we we record in chunks and then uh I'll do I'll do rough edits till till we know where everything needs to be and we're placing certain pieces over certain portions of the film, and then uh, I'll edit edit edit. We we over record so that if I end up with extra time, I'm able to stick other pieces of information, other little recorded bits that don't yeah. necessarily involve uh, what's going on on screen. I'll stick them into those empty spaces to 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 fill them. So uh, yeah. by the time I'm done editing one of our podcasts, I never want to even fucking think about the thing again. <laughs> No, it's hard because you have to live with that movie for so long. Yeah. And like, and it's so by the end of it, you're kind of exhausted. And it's like, it's all I get, I get actually kind of depressed after a commentary because you want it to be really good. So you put so much of yourself into it. So this is totally random. And it's gonna make me sound like an egomaniac. <laughs> but you know, Madonna, Madonna, when she performs, she always says she loses a little piece of like a little piece of her heart dies because she's given so much to the audience. And if you've ever seen Madonna in concert, and I have several times, every performance is like her first performance. It's just so perfect and wonderful. And and her she's in the moment. And so I feel like I do that with my commentaries. I want so badly for people. I just don't want to be spouting out information and and like whatever anybody can get information but i want it to be engaging and i want people to learn something or feel the energy or like to get enthusiastic about the movie or other movies that i mentioned and so i try and i'm not saying i'm perfect on them i'm not madonna that way but like i want i feel like i lose a little piece of myself afterwards because i put so much of myself into it i'm sounding so pretentious and um <laughs> and and then when i'm done it's like you come down off that right because you have to perform to a certain level and then there's that coming down period and it's really kind of, it can be kind of depressing, mm -hmm. you know, and you have to like kind of work your back self back into the regular grind where you, your life doesn't go around one film for 24 hours a day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I've got to say, I, I've, I love your work. I'm Thank so, you. I'm so glad I got over my initial worries about contacting you. And I'm so glad that you uh, are willing to come on the show. I, I cannot. Oh thank yeah, you of course. You, thank you. I really appreciate it. This is fun. You let me talk about, well, you let me pick the freaking movie, of course. It's great. <laughs> well, I, I have to say this is this is a per, this is a perfect talk topic, and when we can arrange to record again, the 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 second topic, uh, and I'll just I'll I'll send one hint out to people. We're not going to talk about what it will be exactly, but I will say that it does revolve around Lamberto Bava. Yay. Yes, yes, yes. You have come with a couple of very interesting topics to the Bloody Pit, and I thank you very much for that because I love having guests on picking ideas because they're ideas that, I, while I may be super enthusiastic about, for some reason they don't rise to the top of my mind, and this is another instance where that has happened. Nothing Underneath is a good film, but one that I don't know that I would ever have done a show on. Thank you. Well, thank you. It was so great to talk about it. 
Amanda, thank you once again, and uh, we will talk to you again soon. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Ben from the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, which is done by myself, my sister, and my father, where the genre of the movie is decided by the cast of a die. The categories are horror, drama, comedy, action, sci-fi and fantasy, animation, and musical. Also on occasion, we'll have a special episode dedicated to conversations with creators, directors, actors involved in the production of movies. Join us and see what movie we pick next. Why, howdy, partner. How can I help you today? I'm looking for a movie to watch, but I'm... What in tarnation was that? Never you mind, son. Now let's focus on your needs here. I'm looking for something to watch, but I want something I ain't seen yet. Ooh, watch yourself there, partner. Why, I reckon you've come to the right place. You've come to the place where the East meets the West. The East meets the West? Where is that, and how's that going to help me? Ooh, that was close. You better duck. I don't understand what's going on here. It's like I'm in a place where kung fu and cowboys have combined somehow. Well, that's right, partner. You're going to find some offbeat films here, no doubt about that. Host Rigor is going to take you on a journey to discover not only the hundreds of amazing martial arts films of Hong Kong's Shaw Brothers, but also Italy's Spaghetti Westerns. Spaghetti Westerns? Is that some kind of joke? No, sir. Western movies made in Italy from the 60s to the 80s are called Spaghetti Westerns, and that's a fact. You can find The East Meets the West on all the major podcasting apps, as well as HavenPodcast.com. Well, thank you kindly, sir. You done settled my entertainment needs, even though it was a tad dangerous in your store. Like I said, go to your podcasting apps or go to HavenPodcast.com. The East meets the West. Your new favorite ranch to hang out at. That's going to bring The Bloody Pit number 109 to a close. Thank you very much for listening to the show. And once again, thanks to Amanda Reyes for coming on the show and being such an incredible guest. I cannot wait to have her back. It's going to be fun. Oh, man. (laughs) She is a blast. Once again, want to recommend her podcast, TV Movie Mayhem. You can find that uh, wherever you find your podcasting fun and entertainment. And also, once again, recommend her book, which we talked about there at the end of the show, which I think is highly entertaining. She and a bunch of other writers talk about, well, I don't know if it's every TV movie from the late 60s through the year 2000, but uh, it's got to be some incredibly high percentage of them. And uh, 
yeah, it'll open your eyes to a lot of films that uh, you're probably going to want to check out. Like she said, the TV movie is kind of one of the last frontiers of movie fanatics as we attempt to seek out everything. So, once again, thanks for listening to the show. If you've got any comments or ideas, you can write the show at thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'll be glad to hear from you, and uh, I guess we will talk to you again next time. This is Rod Barnett, and I'm hoping everybody has a good time out in the heat. Ooh.